Guess what, ghouls and goblins? The Spook Boys have officially joined Patreon. That's right, baby. The show as you know it will remain the same, ad-free, but our patrons will have exclusive access to bonus content. Interviews, franchise, deep dives, even horror television. Wait, did you say television? You heard right, Sally. Becoming a patron means you're not only helping us keep the show running, but that it also remains available on all platforms, and again, ad-free. For more details, head on over to patreon.com, where you can become an official member of the Spoop Troop today. Derek, so check us out. We figured out how to get into the attic at our rental place. Wait, you're just getting into your attic? Yeah, I, we had some stuff well, okay. we needed to, like, figure out some place to put. But uh, got up there and started, like, cleaning out shit and found a bunch of old boxes. Mostly junk, but I did find this crazy reel-to-reel player. I believe I Seems wild, like Jesse's into this shit, so I was probably going to send them to him and see if he can digitize all of them. What kind of recordings are we talking about? What is it? I mean, I don't know. Right now it's just some fucking dude chanting. Book of the Dead. The book it's, is found in human flesh and inked in human blood. It deals with demons and demon resurrection and those forces. It's mostly just this dude talking about some weird research he did. Few pages warned that these enduring I don't know. It's kind of weird. It's making me feel a little bit weird. I don't know if it's brown noty or what, but it's definitely doing something. Oh, oh God, I can hear it. Turn it off. Why have you disturbed our sleep? Awaken us from our ancient slumber. You will die. Like the others before you, one by one, we will drink you. Hell yeah, welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, your movie monster boy Aaron, and my cowardly co-host Derek, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. Hell to the motherfucking yeah, we are going to be discussing The Evil Dead from 1981, and returning to the podcast is our friend Kelly. What's up, bro? Hey, y'all. How y'all doing? Thank you for having me. I wait for the applause in the back, but I know it's not coming, so it's okay. <laughs> I can edit some in. <laughs> Was the last movie and episode we had you on uh, the original Night of the Living Dead? I believe so. Yeah, it was. Yep, yep, yep. Because we did yeah. Fright Night was first, then Get Out. Then Fright Evil, Night, then Get Out. Night of Living Dead, yeah. And now The Evil Dead, man. We, yeah, yo, those good fucking movies. Yeah, we have you on tap for some of the best movies we've covered. I was about to say, those are yeah. uh, those are some of the fucking best movies. So, Hell yeah. uh, guess what, Ding Dongs? Exposing myself even more on this podcast, the ongoing joke that I haven't watched shit growing up. Uh, this is my first time watching The Evil Dead. Wow. Wait, okay. seriously? Yeah. I thought you first had seen time. this one before, A. Nope. B, I thought you had definitely seen this with us in college, because we would watch this nope. fairly regularly. Very cool. 
I know the pop culture references. I, I've seen scenes out of context. Frankly, there are certain scenes that I thought were in this one, but are actually in two <laughs> and vice versa. Most of the pop culture shit, you know, probably is from the second one two. or even yeah. like goofy shit from yeah. Army of Darkness. Yeah. But yeah, again, kind of going with the theme of our show with me being the horror newbie. Guys, I'm going to admit up top, besides watching the movie and doing just a little bit of research, I didn't look into anything. Hell yeah. I decided that you two are going to be the ones taking care of this from a, like a production and horror nerd perspective. I decided I would go into this with just my own perspective, period. And that way I can be like the voice for the other horror noobs that well, for whatever reason yeah, haven't well, watched the Evil Dead yet. Fucking strap in because A, this is one of the most notorious, well-documented, insano oh, production yeah. stories ever in the history of horror. But it is also one of the most inspiring really get you up off your ass if you are a wannabe filmmaker to like actually do something because these guys did it this is one of the best stories of scrape all your pennies together and make a movie with your friends in the backyard yeah so yeah now there's gonna be some fun shit to talk about Uh, before we get into recommendations and granted we'll talk more about the evil dead obviously uh, after that but like before we even get into recommendations right up top what else is there to say about this movie right yeah because like this movie has been picked apart by probably many other podcasts before us but like we're gonna try and have our own viewpoint on this because we have a listener base that falls along and hopefully we can provide you with something that's new about this movie i feel like this is one of these movies where every time you watch it or cover it you catch something new and again that's why i decided to take the route that i take with little to no research I'm going to just be like baby's first view as if I was part of the audience in 1981 and maybe like I can provide, oh, this is what horror is like from Sam Raimi. (laughs) Also for clarification as well, we are just going to be covering the Evil Dead from 1981. We are not covering like Evil Dead the franchise as a whole. We are not going to be covering like any of the sequels necessarily like this is just kind of focusing on the first movie right now we will absolutely be doing the rest of the movies as time goes on and we'll probably wind up doing ash vs. evil dead on our patreon yes the tv series eventually like we are going to do the entire evil dead franchise so that's why we want to just focus on this film only and really like we may just name drop all the other properties in the franchise as needed we'll blow through and mention some stuff but yeah To Derek's point, I think what's cool about Evil Dead is, like Manny just said, that during college, watching it all the time, like, I think Evil Dead is that horror film that no matter what, and Cheesemeisters definitely use, you know, we use the word cheese a lot, but like, no matter how many times we talk about it, I feel you always want to be part of that conversation. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. This probably isn't the best analogy, but it's like the troll two of conversations, but it's fucking good. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. When people are talking about Troll 2, no matter what, you got to fucking jump in because it's just, yeah. it's exciting, you know? <laughs> well, I also push back on the idea that this movie is so bad it's good, or it's amateur to the point that it's charming, and that's what makes yeah. it good. Yeah. 100%, this movie and the filmmakers that made it understand how the horror genre functions. They understand yeah. how... You know, to put together a simple story, tell it visually, edit, sound, everything comes together to create this roller coaster. And 
there's nothing that can take away from the fact that, like, on a primal level, the movie functions exactly how it should. And there have been so many other attempts with similar stories of how this came to be that don't work. There are tons and tons of examples we have of things like this that don't work the way that they intend. This movie does. I mean, you can, like, kind of snicker at the dated effects and kind of the amateurness of the movie, but there is something primal about this that makes it pretty fucking timeless. Yeah. And I'll get to it later, but we literally just saw Evil Dead Rise today, 100%. Seeing all the same functional methods of filmmaking, just updated, more intense, more money behind it, it's all still totally fucking effective. So, yeah, we'll dig into all that in a bit. And listeners, we probably should have been a little more diligent in our planning with because we are banking a ton of episodes like with the soon arrival to my daughter by the time this episode drops. Well, actually, we may be dropping this one out of order to keep it in time with (laughs) Evil Dead Rises. Hopefully, you'll be hearing this one very soon. Yeah, if we had more forethought and we're planning a little more, we would have recorded this a week or so ago to have it drop at the same time as Evil Dead Rises. But instead, we'll aim to have this out like, you know, a week or two after. So hopefully you're hearing this a uh, week from now and Evil Dead Rises is still very much on the forefront of cinema, which I think it will be. Before all that, let's get into a recommendation section. We will discuss other horror media we have consumed lately, be it other horror movies, TV shows, books, comics, video games, etc. Um, recommended it to each other and hopefully your audience hears something you would want to check out. So with that, Kelly, guest always goes first. What uh, What horror have you been getting into lately? It's funny that y'all said that. I was like, oh, shit, I got I to gotta have recommendations. And then it clicked. And one is super high on my list. Uh, and the other one is just there. So I'll start with the other one that was really good, I thought, and I, I loved it. But Triangle of Sadness. Heather and I watched it a couple of weeks back, yeah. Which uh, was actually a an Oscar nominee. And I mean, there are some moments where you're like, this is psychotic. This is pushing some boundaries in, in the best way when it comes to thematic elements right yeah is it kind of like parasite in that it's not a horror movie capital h but it has a lot of horror elements and goes there in a lot of very horrific ways the thing that i think about parasite though is parasite is steeped in realism right you know like there's that shot where literally the rain is puddling down and they're running down yeah yeah, yeah. it's almost like they're going back to where they belong and and you know bong joon ho is just is just an incredible filmmaker but this was a little different because it's not as subtle. Exactly. And it's and it's yeah. very like grandeur. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's steeped in surrealism at moments, I feel. Like it's right. you're like, is this supposed to be funny? Yeah. But there were some moments where I was like, fuck, this is kind of like creepy. <laughs> <laughs> the entire middle section where everything is just fully going awry, I was laughing my ass oh, yeah. off. Yep. And it is one of those things where I was trying my best to put myself in that position because I have been on one cruise. I don't know if I've talked about it on this podcast before. Went on a cruise with my wife's family a couple years ago. I was fucking miserable. I got seasick the entire time. I'm claustrophobic, so being in a tiny cabin, being in all the weird areas of the ship with recycled air, like I hated it. So that, on top of all the chaos that's going on, like on one hand, it felt horrifying to me because of my actual experience, but I was also laughing my ass off at all these rich people (laughs) covered in vomit, covered in shit, falling everywhere, knocking things over. 
and just Woody Harrelson is drunk screaming Marxist bullshit over the megaphone. That was awesome. yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. it's wild, yeah. So it, it's a cruise gone to hell, basically. Is the is the premise? Basically, yeah. And yeah. I think what's cool is the through line to horror is it's almost like horror can be so transcendent. You know what I mean? Like like horror doesn't have a specific face. You know, and I think that's what I love about yeah. the genre that I think all of us love and the listeners love is like. There's some shit, bro, that, you know, as a kid, maybe when I was younger, I didn't fully understand it. I watch it now and I'm like, that's fucking scary. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's and it's <laughs> not scary because the monster or the alien popped out. It's scary because, you know, we find ourselves in these moments or at least the characters find themselves in these moments. That's like it's a simple click of what would I do in that moment? Right. And that's scarier to me than anything else where it makes you think put myself in those shoes. And I think that's what the genre does better than anything else. So, so Triangle of Sadness, I just think it was just a fun film. Derek, if you get a chance, I would recommend that you watch it. And it was nominated for Best Picture, right? I know the Academy, that doesn't mean much to some people because the Academy has been jumping from, you know, six to eight to 10 to seven to four, yeah. to, you know what I mean? So, but I thought it was good enough to be nominated. My second recommendation, which I'm hoping that y'all have seen, I don't think I've talked to many about it, is called Swarm. On Prime Video. Heard about it. Have not started watching it yet. But I'm very interested in it. You still tweeting from that old ass one account? Mm-hmm. She is not like everybody else. She knows what we're thinking and she gives it a name. She's a goddess. I gotta grow up, Dre. I can't stay here with you. Why are you doing this to me? I have to ask you to leave. What do you think she's doing right now? <laughs> Who's your favorite artist? <laughs> You're a killer bee. Part of the swarm. <laughs> Talk about Nyjah. You get stung. They are not your friends. Those are some crazy ass fans. This is feeling a little bit sketchy. You know, I always knew you were going to be something. I was like, she's so weird. You got a spare in the trunk. No! Damn, you got a dead body in there or something? (laughs) Who is your favorite artist? You have to meet her one day. Promise me. You will. I promise. So created by Donald Glover, Childish Gambino to the song. Oh, didn't know about yeah, that. Yeah. Okay. They're written and created by him. First off, I think most good horror films, not just a soundtrack, but almost where the music plays a character. You know what I mean? So yeah, to me, John Carpenter did this best, right? And when I think of some of my favorite horror films, I think of just like those moments that melodically just, it's almost like this heartbeat. You know what I mean? That's that's yeah. kind of going through. Well, music is such a core theme of what yeah. this show is that it, it has to be. Like if, if yeah. the music isn't that, blood running through the whole show that it doesn't functionally work yeah 
you know, I think, I think Donald Glover is just a fucking genius. And he, for the most part, I think he gets the credit that he deserves. You know, no, there's, there's no crying on his end, but it's really good, y'all. It's basically to just give you a quick run through. It's imagine, you know, a Beyonce beehive esque super fan and the levels and the depths that that will take her. Yeah. And I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Interesting. It's basically okay. the fan. But if you completely transposed it yeah. to a modern 21st century social media heavy yeah. setting where despite there still being kind of this digital wall between you and the celebrity, that wall is very thin yeah. and your access to celebrities is a lot closer than it used to be. And so, yeah, when you have somebody who is an obsessive Things can get real messy, and we've seen that in real life several times. You know, definitely with Selena. With uh, did uh-huh. somebody try to kill Eddie Vedder at one point? Yeah, John Lennon. Yeah, yeah, John Lennon. Yeah. So it's it's equal parts the fear of how easy it is to access these people, especially yeah. nowadays, but also just what happens when you yourself or somebody that you know like becomes so subsumed with making that person and their culture and their like persona around them like their whole thing yeah when you take that and make that your whole personality and you fundamentally kind of lose yourself into becoming part of like you said the hive right that's also like a real world thing that we see quite often that obsession and kind of giving over your own individuality to that it's very prescient i do have to say I do really like the poster for oh, the show yeah. where it's her like yeah. mopping up blood yeah. against yeah, a white yeah. background. Which that's <laughs> yeah. the other reason why I'm kind of excited to watch the show because I kind of fucking love Dominic Fishback. Yes. She's, she's amazing so in Judas and the Black Messiah. She's yes. fucking awesome in The Deuce, that HBO show. She's fucking yeah. awesome in that. She's one of those people that I've been kind of keeping an eye on her career. And um, this is a, a very interesting swerve for her. So I'm I'm interested to check it out for that reason as well. That and this is also a show that Heather would be 100% about checking out. So we're probably going to watch it soon. I think right now we're just in the middle of Mandalorian, Succession, Yellow Jackets. We just got like too many TV shows going on. But yeah, that's one that thank you for reminding me. Like I'm oh, going to yeah. kind of oh, shove yeah. it higher up on the list now that I've talked to somebody who's seen it. And it was a surprise. For me, it was one of those, like, I, I really just don't have as much time as as I would like as of late. But man, I started it and, you know, get home, fucking, you know, start watching it at like 11, 12 at night yeah. and just roll through. You know, it's just, it's that good. It's really good. Hell yeah. Well, I only have one recommendation this week because I know the Evil Dead's going to be, uh, there's a lot to cover. So uh, the other day on our horror Twitter, I saw somebody just posting about a movie that they were saying needs more recognition for what it did and how it is a little criminal that I guess it's overlooked and not well known outside of horror fans. And it's an early movie. It's from 1971. It's called Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Oh, hell yeah. Directed and written by John Hancock. It's also written by uh, Lee Kalshim. I'm calling on all the spirits of everyone who's ever died in this house. Paramount Pictures presents Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Jessica! Jessica! Who are you? Why have you been following me? I'm in your butt. You want to die. Go on. You want to die. 
tortured, cold, deadly horror before. But this time it's all turned loose in your direction. It's an independent horror movie from 1971, and it's a vampire movie. Maybe, kind of. Maybe. Right, yeah. Yeah, right? If anything, it's an experimental horror movie Yeah, in so many ways. What's fascinating about this movie is because this predates Texas Chainsaw by three years, and this movie deals so much with the death of counterculture from the 60s yeah, and, like, the aging hippies. That is such a freaking, like, big part of this movie of just how all these characters are aging hippies. The whole thing is exploring how counterculture failed. There were even elements of feeling a little bit like Night of the Living Dead, how it's very secluded. All this is taking place, like, in a quiet town and mostly in a quiet house that's sort of out in the middle of nowhere, like a farmhouse. But, like, all this weird shit's happening here and in the same way that Night of the Living Dead literally only just takes place in the same setting in a farmhouse. Basically, it follows a group of three hippies who are moving, I think, from New York. One of them was a basis for the New York Philharmonic. His wife, Jessica, just recently was released from a mental institution. It's not stated exactly what she was in this mental institution for, but you can kind of tell she has severe anxiety, depression, and it's also hinted that she had hallucinations, like visual and auditory hallucinations. And they have their hippie friend Woody with them. And then when they get to the house, they find that there's this drifter who's been living in the house named Emily. Yeah. The lead up to this is kind of creepy because like there's so many moments even leading up to them getting to this farmhouse where Jessica sees somebody watching her, usually a woman in white, and you don't know if that's her hallucinating it. You don't know if that person's actually there and they're real. They actually kind of look a little bit like Emily when you meet Emily later on. It plays with the idea of voices going off in her head, and she sometimes just dismisses them as her own you know, mental illness. But it's kind of implied that maybe it isn't just her mental illness. Like Maybe there's some outside force sending these messages to her. They, they basically tell Emily like she can stay as long as she wants and kind of are setting up like, hey, we can turn this farmhouse into like a commune sort of for the four of us. Jessica starts seeing that Emily is having this weird effect on the two guys, including her own husband. And then just these weird happenings start going on around the farm. And then it goes into some wild fucking swings and places where Emily might be a vampress who, when she bites or scratches men, like basically causes them to become her ghouls that will do her bidding. You start kind of thinking like maybe the whole town is this way and will do her bidding. Dead bodies start popping up, but again, you're not a thousand percent sure of what's actually happening in reality yeah. and what's just in Jessica's brain. Surprisingly, for a 1971 independent horror movie, this was bloody. This is actually bloodier than and more gory, I'd say, than even Texas Chainsaw, which is you know actually a bloodless movie for as much of it being you know Texas Chainsaw. You brought up surrealism, Kelly, with one of your recommendations. This movie very much operates in dream logic, and it feels like a prototypical kind of dream logic surreal horror film like we would later see popularized by like david lynch and then the thing that led me down a little bit of a rabbit hole as i was looking more into this is that this is kind of a beat for beat at the time modernization of a classic vampire story that i had never heard of 
and it was a gothic novella done by an Irish author named Sheridan Le Fanu. And it was one of the earliest works of vampire fiction. Here's the thing that blew my mind. It predated Bram Stoker's Dracula by 26 years. And this was a female vampire story. It's all the Carmilla stories. It's all the Carmilla stories, yeah. yeah. And which the story is narrated from a woman's perspective, too. Like, the main character is a woman. Both the protagonist and the villain are women. And it's basically the prototype for queer vampire. Yeah. And it was published as a serial from 1871 to 1872. Uh, the serial was named The Dark Blue, which was a London-based literary magazine. They basically just kind of did beat-for-beat beat the Carmilla story and made it into this movie about aging hippies that moved out to the countryside. Again, it's haunting. Like Haunting is the best way I can describe it, because you see so many moments of there's somebody, like a body under the water, and you're not sure it's actually there. Somebody watching from like behind a tree, but you're not sure if they're there. It's just a fascinating film. Um, and I am a little surprised it, it doesn't, I, I guess because it was like independent in nature. Speaking of low budget, it only had a budget of 250000 oh, wow. um, which even at the time of 71 doesn't seem like a ton. I had a lot of fun with it. I thought it was a, a very interesting piece of cinema, especially if you want to like go watch a retrospective and see kind of one of the prototypes for films that would happen later on in horror, a legacy film, if you will. I was glad I watched it. It's not a film I would always return to, but it's definitely a film that I think needs to be talked about more. And it's a cool 89 minutes. So it is yeah. very easy watch. I watched it all, I think, on Vudu for free. It has been on Shudder on and off. I've seen it on Tubi. Scream Factory has a good blue of it out right now. But uh, yeah, I'm glad that you checked this one out. I think it's on our list. And I'm glad that you mentioned as well that this is definitely one of the like earlier examples of queer horror. Yeah. In a very interesting way. So yeah, this one's definitely worth checking out. And as far as inspiration goes, you can start to kind of see little threads of that movie throughout other stuff that would come later. It's a movie that I think people at the time who were into horror saw it, but it didn't, like you said, make that big of a cultural imprint. But it's a movie now that, like you said, I, th I think it needs more mainstream exposure, certainly. But it's fun, yeah. And it does feel like it took the ball and started running down the field as far as critiquing the death of counterculture from the 60s and 70s. And then Texas Chainsaw took the ball from it and brought it across the goal line. Yeah, I do think Texas Chainsaw obviously is the better movie of the two, but I don't know if the elements of Texas Chainsaw... I mean, they're, they're completely different movies. They're completely different movies, but I don't know if the analysis on counterculture, the critiques on counterculture would have been as strong without let's scare Jessica to death. But I, who knows? I don't know if Toby Hooper even saw this fucking movie. Yeah. He might not have even seen it. <laughs> it is definitely an interesting piece of cinema. It feels like one of those stepping stones from like sixties into seventies and eighties horror, kind of like we even touched on with a uh, night of the living death kind of as one of those, we're moving away from the fifties B movie slash hammer horror into what we now know as modern 70s and 80s horror movie that a lot of people consider was the golden age of horror but yeah so let's scare jessica to death 1971 definitely worth the watch i want to see that I was checking out the trailer in the back i think what's cool and i just want to kind of maybe draw a perspective real quick what's great about what y'all just said and where we can kind of take it for two seconds i remember i was watching the hollywood report round table and it was the year that like it was tom hooper ridley scott danny boyle Quentin Tarantino was at the table, but they were all talking. And, and really, Scott was like, he's like, how many movies are made 
domestically or or maybe internationally, right? And the the number is just astounding, right? Like it's a it's a crazy number. But then I think about you know when you know you'd ask if if Toby Hooper had seen it, and I do wonder about that because I feel like Toby probably did check this out, you know. And I love that most of the at least the masters of horror, I feel they were pretty in tune with the horror of the day. Yeah. And I think about there just wasn't as many movies being made, you know, in 1971. Yeah. Because now think about it, y'all. Real talk. Manny's like, I got to fucking catch up on TV shows because there's so much content. <laughs> yeah. Now there's a shit ton of content. It's too much. Just it's too Netflix much. probably puts out more original Netflix movies in a year than total domestic movies that were released in like 1971. I feel like there's at least 50 Adam Sandler Netflix films at this moment. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like just Adam. And I love the Sandman. So they'll, they'll take that out of context. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because like this feels different than maybe even anything else that was coming out in 71, even in horror. I'm looking at it. It looks interesting. Again, a vampire movie besides like hammer horror shit, which, don't get me wrong, I'd love to watch some Hammer Horror Dracula, but this seems so different. And it again, vampire question mark? Yeah. You kind of have to watch it to see like what we're talking about. Not everything is what it seems in this movie. Awesome. Which I think it does very much on purpose. But yeah, that's all I got. Hell yeah, cool. Well, I have really just one recommendation as well. Like I mentioned, we saw Evil Dead Rise literally today. I will discuss that at the end of this episode. So I guess technically I have to. Anyway, the story goes, we were going to try to fit in Evil Dead Rise before we recorded this episode. That only makes sense. Bought fucking tickets. Drove 30 minutes to the Alamo that was actually showing it on Thursday because our other usual movie theater up here was not showing it until next week. For whatever reason, I don't know why the hell they were showing yeah, this really movie weird. this yeah. weekend. Yeah, they're more of a like indie off the beaten uh, path okay. kind of theater. So, gotcha. They're playing stuff like How to Blow Up a Pipeline, which I also want to see, but that's not playing in any mainstream theaters, right? Yeah. And then all the AMC's and Regals around us are doing that new stupid bullshit tiered pricing where tickets are more expensive depending on the movie you're going to see and the day you're going and the time <laughs> and you're going. Opening weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did hear about that. Yeah. So just to like share like how long it's been since I've actually gone to the movie theaters. I didn't know they were even doing that. It's pretty new, I think. So this <laughs> just kind of started and it okay. started with all these chains that are having problems getting butts in the seats. Yeah. Right? Regal, AMC, what the fuck are you doing? I am not paying. $25 a ticket to go see Evil Dead. That's not happening, especially considering that the AMCs and the Regals around here are basically trash in terms of their AV. I can buy Evil Dead Rise in 4K yeah. in probably two and months and watch it at yeah. home on a better setup. Probably less than two months. Yeah, right? Then I can pay $50 to go see it at this fucking shitty AMC, right? Anyway. You know what they're they're probably trying to get you to do? You know, and I'm not trying to like Throw a quick plug for AMC. Fuck them. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> they probably want you to do their like the unlimited the subscription yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, totally. Which I would be fine with that 
if their theaters weren't also trash. And that's a problem. Well, look at Aaron sitting on his cinema throne, wanting the <laughs> best possible view. Look, again, you just said I haven't been to a movie in a long time because you have kids and other priorities and everything oh, yeah. else. Guess what? <laughs> I am not going to pay fucking $40 I agree. plus. I agree. I know. I'm just messing with you. <laughs> right? I have a nice home setup. I can buy the fucking movie in 4K for 20 bucks in a couple of months. Anyway. I realize that I am also part of the problem, but part of the problem is theaters got to step their shit up, right? I love the Angelica that we have up here. It's great. The Alamo's up here fucking rock. Anyway, we got tickets to go see it at Alamo. We drove 30 minutes through all the dense traffic to get there. And then they were like, oh, yeah, by the way, we're just offering refunds to everybody because the power on the block has been going oh, like on and off all no. day with construction. Sorry. So we were like, shit. Well. I still want to see a movie tonight. We still have time. We got dressed and are out. So we blasted over to the Angelica and perfectly got there right in time to check out the other movie I wanted to see that's coming out this weekend, which is Ari Aster's new movie, Bo is Afraid. Yeah. She's very pretty. Is that the type of girl you're attracted to? I am so sorry for what you're down to you. I wanted a child. I'm visiting my mother tomorrow. Do you ever wish that she was dead? What? Bo? Are you on your way? I'm on my way. I just... It's not safe, is it? I sincerely doubt that. I'm sure you'll do the right thing, sweetheart. So... Ari Aster, again, guy who directed Hereditary, Midsummer, two movies that I, like, really fucking love from the past couple of years. This is his new one. And uh, it is not horror per se. This is the least horror overtly of the three movies that he has made. But it is still unsettling, disturbing, satirically horrific. And it's interesting to hear how Ari Aster himself has described the movie, because on one hand, he has said, this is Lord of the Rings for Jewish men who have mommy problems. <laughs> and then on the other hand, he has said, this is what happens when you give a 10-year-old a bunch of Zoloft and tell him to go get groceries. Wow. Both of those things are true. This felt like a three-hour long... Was it three hours? It's three hours. Oh, fuck. Yeah, fuck. It is insanely long. But I think it's broken up into these very interesting kind of acts to where it, it's changing every 30 minutes or so into something different. It felt like watching one long episode of Tim and Eric's Bedtime Stories, where it is the absolute most nightmare logic, nothing makes sense, wow. everything is fucking insano, surreal, and satirical. But it is also 100% the kind of movie that this is what it's like if you have extreme social anxiety. It's like being in a person's <sighs> head like that for three hours. So I, I have to ask you right here, because I know that Heather, like me, has some social anxiety. How did she respond to that whole aspect to it? So I think we both came out, and that's the other thing, this movie is very polarizing. This movie is very polarizing right now because either you are on that fucked up wavelength and you see the humor in it 
and you just kind of roll with how surreal it is. Yeah. Or you just 100% are sitting there hating the fucking movie for the entire runtime. Heather and I both really liked it. It is definitely, like, not a movie we loved because it is purposely a very unpleasant watch. It is not my favorite Ari Aster movie. I mean, granted, he's only made three movies, uh, but I think it is a super interesting balls to the wall. I am doing all the crazy bullshit I've wanted to do for years. I'm writing every blank check right now while I have the opportunity to do so. Like, it is that kind of insano. And so, yes, I mean, it is dealing with like a lot of that social anxiety and stuff like that. But it, I, I think it's one of the things like if you kind of deal with that already in real life, you can kind of see the humor and the absurdity of how it feels to live your life just trying to do basic things like get my shit, leave my apartment, get in a cab, fly to go visit my mother, and then come back. But just the absurdity of everything that can go wrong will go wrong. Everything will backfire. Everything's going to be terrible. You're fucking terrible. The world is terrible. Like, it's just that collapsing in on yourself, super fear, and just manic, like, the world is a terrifying place kind of thing. And so, like I said, there's not anything that's overtly horror in it. But, like, there's moments where they are literally throwing dead bodies around like ragdolls. There are crazy homeless guys with their dicks out stabbing people in the street and playing oh, in their yeah. guts. That's a nightmare of mine, by the way. There is a giant fucking Starship Troopers level penis monster. There is, like, a terrifying experience in the woods. There are spiders in it. It's just fucking absurd in every way shape and form i mean everywhere I, i've seen about it has classified it technically as a horror movie so i mean he also kind of calls it a horror movie but again it is a horror movie for people who like maybe live perfectly normal lives and are well adjusted and it's just <laughs> this is what it's like to be in the head of somebody who has anxiety all these severe <laughs> issues and like tons of mommy problems as well i mean the whole movie is about how this guy has fucked up toxic relationship with his mom and just all of that back and forth and all the trauma of him growing up with this malevolent force in his life and how he also fed into that with all of his neuroses like it's just kind of this giant fucked up you know loop that goes through the entire movie do you think that this is a lot of Ari Aster himself oh, dealing I'm with sure. some shit. I would say probably. So. I'm sure this sounds like an extremely personal movie. He made. Yeah, everybody joked about the Fablemans just being Steven Spielberg paying a hundred million dollars to go to therapy. That's pretty much what this movie <laughs> is too. Like yeah. it's very much just Ari Aster goes to therapy. It's fucking wild, and the cast of it is insane. I mean, obviously Joaquin Phoenix is the lead, and he's in his usual intense completely committing to the bit self. I know a lot of people don't always like the movies he is in, but Joaquin Phoenix is always really good. Yeah. I don't like Joker. I don't like what Joker is trying to do and say, I think it's very on the nose, whatever. He is good in Joker, yeah. right? Even in bad movies, he's the most interesting yes. part of the movie. So like he fully fucking commits in this. Patty Lapone plays his mom and she is also just fucking buck wild the entire time amy ryan and nathan lane are this 
perfectly seemingly well-adjusted suburban couple, but like everything in their part of the story is just everybody screaming, everybody on pills, everybody is just slightly off. By the way, because like we always joke about this like Tom Cruise and Keanu Reeves, talk about people who don't seem to fucking age. Yeah, Amy Ryan yeah. has looked the same for years And now. Nathan Lane. It's wild and Nathan that they're Lane, just yeah. playing suburban parents, you know? Parker Posey is this girl that he had a crush on when they were kids, and she kind of re-enters his life now that they're adults. She is always fucking hilarious. I love Parker Posey. I, love, I love her. From Laurel, Mississippi, 20 minutes from where I grew up and where we went to college. She is fucking hilarious, and there is a line that she says in the movie that I was snotting laughing because it's just so fucking awkward and gross and just insane. So, yeah, definitely a movie where, like, if you want to go on a cinematic journey into absurdity, definitely go check it out. Absolutely. Again, know that it is three hours. Again, know that it is absolute, complete, 100% what the fuck absurdism but it is a trip and i very much enjoyed it a lot i was equally cringy and horrified and like laughing my ass off through the entire thing in a very dark way so i enjoyed it a good bit i'm glad that you were able to still fit in evil dead rises yes. and like you said you're not going to bring it up here even though it is technically a recommendation we'll talk about it at the end yeah. you're gonna save it since we're doing the Evil Dead, yeah. Yeah, and I won't talk about it super in-depth, because obviously, like, it's just now coming out, so I won't get into, like, spoilers or anything. Cool. All right, well, let's uh, go ahead and transition into talking about Evil Dead from 1981, directed by Sam Raimi. No, it was the woods themselves! <laughs> They're alive, actually! the fuck this is another one i guess well we may or may not be uh releasing these in order i don't know there's another major director who we are like also about to just get into one of his movies for the, for first, the first time, time. yeah and i yeah. kind of feel the same thing now where i was just like shit this is the first sam raimi movie we've done what <laughs> yep. the hell yeah but this is the perfect place to start because this is where it all started Definitely. this very much is the urtex explaining his entire deal as a filmmaker. So yeah, this is a great place to start. Kelly, this was a movie that you specifically mentioned when we were asking, like, what did you want to cover? So let's start there. Tell us why you picked this movie, how you came to find this movie and check it out for the first time, like what kind of impact it had on you. Just give us your spiel. I would say in some ways it's probably more impactful than like 
Night of Living Dead and Fright Night, you know, some of those like the films that I've told y'all, you know, I was sat down and popped in the fucking VHS. Well, before recording, you said that your three top horror movies would be Fright Night, Night of the Living Dead, and this. I would say those would be definitely top three. I think why Evil Dead is maybe just a little more important. So I know Manny knows this. Derek, I'm pretty sure I've told you, but y'all know I was born in Detroit, yes. right? Yeah. And you know, what's cool, you know, and Sam Raimi and the Raimis are from Royal Oak, which is, it's a suburb of Detroit, but it's maybe 15, 20 minutes away. It's not that far. And a lot of my siblings, you know, I'm the baby of 15, but out of the Detroit nine, four of them actually were raised in Royal Oak, not far from, you know, where, where Sam and Ivy and Ted are from. But what's dope is like, for me, kind of like getting older and being like, man, well, he fucking did it, right? Yeah. You know, Bruce Campbell talks in his novel. Many is, is if these chins could talk or- If chins could kill and chins the other kill. one's like confessions yes. of a B-movie actor. If chins could kill is the one, that's the one that I read specifically, but- I know he talked about Sam would go to his fucking dentist and be like, yo, mm-hmm. let me get some money. And the dude's like, you got cavities, bro. You know, like, like, so <laughs> I, I just think it's cool how you piece things together. But I, I consider that homegrown because if you really think about it, I'm just trying to think of other filmmakers that I know. And I'm probably just going to go aloof, but I'm trying to think of other filmmakers that I know that are from the Detroit area, you know, that have in the horror realm, at least. So not necessarily in the horror realm, but the Coen brothers. And yes. we're going to talk about them in a second because yeah. they also are connected in with this whole thing, too. But yeah, it, Detroit is not a place that you normally think of in terms of movies being shot there. Necessarily, yeah. There's not a whole lot of movies in the last couple of years being shot there, at least. Yeah. But it's just, yeah, it's not a place that you think of as far as where filmmakers came from, yeah. right? Well, and I think the other thing, Kelly, too, that, And I might be putting words in your mouth, so stop me if I am, but something I've noticed with having you on as a guest is you like to talk about the act of filmmaking and what it means to be an independent filmmaker. And I know when we covered Night of the Living Dead, you talked a lot about guerrilla filmmaking, explaining what that was to me, maybe part of our audience who didn't know as well. And I feel like The Evil Dead is like the ultimate independent horror movie. I know, I don't know if it was actually independent was made but it feels like like the ultimate amateur horror movie like this is an independent filmmaker living the dream basically like getting that chance and getting like all right independent filmmaker we are going to give you the shot here you go and he puts out the evil dead yeah and like i think that's why it resonates with you so much too if i had to guess yeah yeah i think what's dope though is you know i think at the core true independent filmmaking in a way it's not even like you know i know you said living the dream I think that's being kind. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's being gracious. I think, <laughs> I think independent yeah. filmmaking at the core is, can we get this fucking done? To you struggle. know what I mean? And, and I think that's what's the greatest accomplishment with Evil Dead is like, he got it done. Well, and it's all seen in retrospective yeah. too, like, right? Because like, and I'm, you guys will probably educate me as we go on, but I don't even know like how much he actually reaped the benefits of the Evil Dead. Um, or if he was like also one of the, like a John Carpenter where like he kind of got screwed over and didn't really see at least the financial success that he should have gotten from this one. I think he did well enough to where, and and many correct me, but I think he did well enough to where he was able to make Dead by Dawn, or what would become Dead by Dawn, which is Evil Dead 2. And it's crazy, you know, just to say this real quick, you know, if we can think of just rapid fire, some of our favorite filmmakers, right? Martin Scorsese still fights studios, yeah. you know, to get shit made. Coppola literally just sold his fucking winery yeah. to yeah. make his latest movie. 
Even they struggled to get the money they need. Yeah. And I think the thing that sucks is maybe just a little bit, we might be seeing a little bit of a shift where it's like, okay, financiers and the people who control the money are being a little more laxed or taking a little more chance. Filmmaking has always been this high risk, low reward type industry, <laughs> or at least yeah. that's the way the money men look at it, right? Because as artists, what do we want, right? All I want is to have my story be told, whatever I want to yeah. get across, right? That's all I ever care about. When I call action and I yell cut and, and then get to the edit, like all I care about is, okay, am I getting across what I want to get across? Which to be honest with you, any filmmaker listening, when I start in pre-production and I get to post-production, it's never what I fucking set out to make. You know what I mean? And that's <laughs> it's all about compromise. Filmmaking is a compromise yeah. game, right? On every yeah. level, in every department. Well, you could definitely feel it here in Evil oh, Dead. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. I feel like this is the Bible to, all right, <laughs> filmmaker, here's how you deal with shit and make something that still kind of is special. So kind of to take from what you were saying there and kind of shift it more to what does this horror movie mean? from a, a newbie's perspective, right? Because Aaron and Kelly, you guys are like two of uh, the most cinema-verse people I know, especially you, Aaron. And it's not just horror, but the thing that always blew me away, Aaron, is that of all the cinema you watch that's ho- not even horror-related, you've told me this movie, The Evil Dead, is in your top ten movies. Movies, like not even horror, like that's just awesome. movies. Blows my mind, but that's the thing. Now that I've seen it, and again, this is like a lot of you horror even casual horror fans are probably like, well, duh, but <laughs> this is for the people like me who haven't watched this yet and still need to watch it. I now understand how important this movie is to pop culture in general. This is something that transcends even horror. I get it now. The best way it felt like after I watched it, my initial reaction is like, I, I forget the uh, who says this and what song, but I'm your favorite rapper's favorite rapper. I feel like your favorite horror director's favorite horror film is The Evil Dead from 1981. And I don't mean that to sound gatekeepy, but I also think that this movie is so universal from a horror perspective. It was very influential. There's a whole generation yeah. of people that yeah. came up with this and the legend of it, too. But my point was, too, is that this movie is so universal and even now is so universal that people like me and people who don't even necessarily even like horror that much, but still appreciate good filmmaking or interesting filmmaking can still love it just as much as the most horror director or the most horror fan who also happens to love the evil dead as well. I think this is a movie where you can bring it up in any conversation. And even if you're talking to one of the most well-versed horror fans who like tries to purposely only scope out the lesser known horror and deep cuts, even they, I feel like would still have a lot of good things and appreciation for the evil dead. I think a word that's overused when it comes to film and cinema is timeless, right? Right. We use that word timeless a lot, I feel. And I'm not talking about the three of us on this panel. I just mean in general, when you're talking to somebody, what it means to me, which may be a little different than other people, what timeless means to me is not just in a sense that, oh, well, I can watch this 50 years from now. It just had its, how, what anniversary? 40th? 40th, I think. Yeah. So like I can watch it 40 years later and it's still fucking good. That is true, right? And I don't want to take away from that. I think great horror films, specifically, I'm going to talk about horror films because that's what we're talking about, but I think great horror films are timeless. What a timeless horror film to me means is if I can watch this shit, which it does to me every time, and it transports me back to 1981, and I feel like I'm watching it as when everyone else watched it. I told this story the other day 
uh, and I was talking to somebody. They were like, yeah, man, War of the Worlds. They're talking about the Spielberg remake. They're like, War of the Worlds. It really scared me for some reason. And I was like, oh, that's very interesting. You know, ponder, like, tell me more, you know, like the RoboCop, tell me more. Right. So we start talking and he had no idea that it was a remake. Also had no idea that it was originally a radio broadcast yeah. where that caused a riot. lost <laughs> lost their fucking minds, right? Yeah. <laughs> yep. To me, I think timeless is, am I transported back to like the feeling and the sensation of how they first felt when they watched it in 1981? I think that's the testament to a true timeless classic. And to back you up right there, I'm glad you brought that up because it's something I wouldn't have brought up otherwise. I am that perspective of on the, I'm the opposite end of you, Kelly. You've seen this movie probably dozens of times. This is my first start to finish watch. And then it did exactly that. I almost say it, it's not timeless in that it's a movie that seems out of place or it could be happening in any time period and that's irrelevant. No, it does fully feel like it's taking place at the end of the seventies, early eighties, but I feel like it's a, like almost a timeless universal period piece yeah. because when I was watching it, like you said, I felt like I was watching something almost even forbidden. Like, I can't believe they're doing this or getting away with this. And this is me after seeing all the like gory shit I've <laughs> consumed. Like, I just beat fucking Resident Evil remake where like people's bodies are getting chopped in half and like shit's climbing <laughs> out of like they're exploding corpses and stuff that's way gorier and way more intense now. Like, at least from a graphical standpoint. And it's funny, too, because Resident Evil would not exist if not. Would not exist without the evil. Dead. No. Yeah. But then I'm watching like The Evil Dead from 1981 and it's blowing me away. And frankly, this movie fucking is terrifying still. Yeah. Hey, horror newbies, here's an intense one for you. <laughs> Evil Dead from 1981. Yeah, it, it can't be, especially with the stop motion effects and some of the more rudimentary, prosthetics yeah. and practical effects. It's, it's rudimentary, but the scares are fucking scary in this movie. Oh, yeah. This is not a for a faint of heart kind of horror movie. From all aspects, not just jump scares or gore. It has all of it. It has jump scares. It has gore. It has demonic possession. It has supernatural shit going on. There's even a little bit of slasherness to certain scenes. There is intense shit all over this movie. And pretty much the main character you're following is having like a trauma mental breakdown the whole time this is happening in yeah. front of him. I was shocked at how much this movie scared me. Um, I thought I was ready for it, and it, it still got me. In. And it kind of goes, I know Sam Raimi is like a master of jump scares. I, I understand that now. <laughs> yeah. So for me, imagine being me going to my neighborhood video rental place and saying like, yeah, I want to watch something scary. Sneak me a tape that I can bring home <laughs> and watch, and I'll bring it back to you later. And the guy at the video rental store, who is my, like, go-to, let me get away with awful shit kind of guy, and he would check stuff out to me and not put it on my parents' account, he hands me Evil Dead 2 and is like, yo, check this shit out. I think you're going to have a blast with it. I kind of looked at the box, and it's just that fucking skull with, like, yeah. the eyes looking sideways, yeah. and I was like, what the so fuck good. is this? Because I'd seen that box a thousand times. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, you like Three Stooges. Go home and watch this shit. You'll get a kick out of it. This one's a lot of fun. It's very funny. So I go home and I put it in and it starts and I'm like, okay, this just says the evil dead, but it looks like all the same stuff that I saw in the box. Start watching it and I get fucking terrified watching this because I'm maybe like 10. <laughs> oh, did he give you the first one instead of the second one? So I'm watching this fucking movie with the fucking dark woods 
and the creepy recording and little by little everybody getting possessed and turning into these fucking taunting, shit-talking, evil demons that there is no way to stop and you can't get away. Legitimately look unsettling, too, because even just the idea of white eyes, that is unsettling as fuck even now. It was also maybe the grossest, goriest thing that I had seen up until that point in my life. I was fucking terrified because he had told me this movie is funny. (laughs) watch this one the first movie is get fucked (laughs) right so i bring it back the next day i'm kind of shell-shocked i'm not really talking to him and he's like so what'd you think that movie was fucking fun right and i was like that movie was really scary don't give me anything like that anymore and he was like what do you mean would you like the part where like all the things in the cabin like come alive and start laughing and i was like that that didn't happen and he was like, what do you mean? That That's totally part. You not remember the part where like his hand comes alive? And I was like, that didn't happen. And he was like, wait, 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 wait. He popped the clamshell open. Sure enough, Evil Dead. And he oh, went and looked wow. and his tape for Evil Dead 1 had two in it. So somebody, <laughs> he was like, somebody must have like checked both out at the same time and just put them back in the wrong boxes. I'm fucking sorry. Do you still want the second one? It is actually really funny. And so I like got that one and went home and watched it too. And yeah, the second movie is obviously a lot more comedic, right? But yeah, it fucked me up. How old were you? Maybe 10, 10, 11, somewhere in there. Yeah, that would have fucked me up too. It (laughs) fucked me up. And so it's interesting too, because I think for most people around our age, you usually see two or Army of Darkness. Before you see the original, because at least Army of Darkness, especially, was on cable constantly. All the time. Army of Darkness was on sci-fi a lot. It was on sci-fi, USA. What, like TBS? Yeah, like maybe TBS. I can't remember. It was just on. Just like the general family, the family channel. All the fucking time. And that was one that once I realized what this whole franchise was, I was like, wait. I have fucking seen Army of Darkness. I've seen bits and pieces of this. I just didn't know, like, what this was. So then I got really excited because I had conquered the initial, like, Mount Everest of horror when it comes to this series. And I was like, fuck yes, now I'm excited. Now I want to check out Army of Darkness for real. Watch that one, and it blew me away. And, you know, every time it came on TV from that point on, I would fucking watch it. I love this trend of, granted, we're not going to talk much about the sequels obviously but i do like this trend because we saw this with texas chainsaw as well texas chainsaw really fucking intense yeah. serious horror movie the evil dead really fucking intense serious horror movie the second ones are kind of goofy yeah like a lot of laugh out loud moments they go full camp but yeah this was one that you know if it weren't for the swapped tapes i had such a moment of crisis Where I was like, wait, (laughs) if this was supposed to be the funny one, then holy fucking shit, the first movie has got to be the scariest thing anybody (laughs) has ever made. And, you know, a lot of it was still just kind of a little bit over my head. The fucking tree rape was a little bit much, even for me as a kid. I was like, oh, what's happening here, right? But just seeing how visceral that movie was, I I was so fucking terrified by it. But then once I saw the second one, I was like, okay, well, this is a lot funnier. And then I started learning more about how the movie was made. And I mean, that's so much of how I got into movies growing up was just, here is something technically marvelous, right? Honey, I Shrunk the Kids was a fucking amazing movie. And then I watched the like Disney making of 
documentary all the time growing up because then it showed you, wait, this is how this stuff works. Yeah. This is how they did all of it. And so Evil Dead was another one of those movies for me that became such a fucking inspiring. These guys figured it out. Like you said, they did this on a shoestring budget in the woods with their friends and they made this fucking crazy movie. And, you know, Derek, I guess to kind of answer your question from earlier, this was not an immediate, oh, now it's just fame and fortune and, you know, he made yeah, a ton of money yeah. off of this one. It's not that kind of story. This is definitely one where, like, this allowed him to then make his next movie. And then that movie kind of let him make his next movie. And it was like a slow kind of buildup for yeah. Raimi. But it was never like, oh, God, this movie was crazy successful and I made a gajillion dollars off of it. And it also wasn't quite. This movie made a gajillion dollars and I got completely fucked out of it. Like right. what you hear happened with the first Texas Chainsaw and the first Halloween. Like this doesn't seem to have that kind of shitty tragic back end to it. So here's the question for both of you guys then. At the time it released, did it not have a similar impact that like Halloween and Texas Chainsaw had? It did, but in a smaller sense. Yeah. And it was definitely a slow roll to that. Okay, so there is actually a cult status technically then to this movie because now this movie, like at least in the horror circles, is up there as one of the one of the greatest. It's totally mainstream, yeah. Which, yeah, we'll kind of get into that in a minute as far as the release and all that. You know, when you when you bring up Halloween and did you you said Texas Chainsaw, right? That was the other one that you mentioned. Yeah. When you think yeah. of those two films, you know, you think of Mustafa Akkad. I, I can't think of the guy who produced Chainsaw for Toby, but those had. I wouldn't say they're the biggest backers. But yeah, no, you're right. At least I can speak to Akkad, like Akkad fucking had. Akkad was. He had his fingers yeah. in the industry, you know? Yeah, he was a big name even then, yeah. Evil Dead was literally like, it was Rob Tappert, Bruce Campbell, and Sam Raimi making shit happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, and I think that's the greatest thing. And borrowing money, like you said, from dentists and family friends and just like scraping <laughs> everything they could to make the movie. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I mean, obviously from here. You know, Sam Raimi would go on to make the other Evil Dead movies, you know, Evil Dead 2, Army of Darkness, Darkman, which is one of the interesting post-Burton Batman, let's keep making stuff in the same vein. I fucking love Darkman. Julie! <laughs> yeah. Even I know that reference. <laughs> <laughs> fucking Quick in the Dead, which is a bonkers Western that I fucking That's love. That's one of my favorite Westerns. A Simple Plan, which is... The most grounded, quiet Sam Raimi movie. I mean, most people are going to point to that and say, oh, well, there's the actual real filmmaker coming out. Wish he had made more stuff like Simple Plan. I mean, I wish he had made more stuff like Simple Plan too, but not at, you know, let's get rid of all the other shit that he made, right? He did The Gift, which is kind of a return to horror. And then, of course, he did the Spider-Man trilogy, which Spider-Man 2 might be my favorite still of all these fucking superhero movies. I mean, he gave us Bonesaw. Yeah. Hey, Freak Joe, you're going nowhere. I got you for three minutes. Three minutes of playtime. <laughs> Bonesaw's ready. I got you for three minutes. Three minutes. Three minutes. Playtime. Playtime. <laughs> And then, of course, he does Drag Me to Hell a couple of years later, which is a return to the same kind Drag of balls-out, high-energy, insano, screaming, gory, goopy bullshit that Evil Dead is. <laughs> I, so, remember when I sent you that gif a little while ago? Like, imagine you're a high-paying actress, you get to set, and this is what you have to do for the day. 
of just the bug vomiting of the bug vomiting into her mouth of the like animatronic on top of her Uh, she's great i love it though i love it (laughs) and then yeah he just directed the latest dr strange movie which you know fun i love the sam raimi-ness of that movie like there's a lot of his personality in it so you know for as flawed as a lot of the more recent marvel movies have been that one at least was still fun for the Raiminess aspect. But then he's also one of these guys that has steadily kind of paid things forward as a producer. And he oh, has yeah. gotten a lot of other newer filmmakers saw that. in the fold, right? So, I mean, he's produced stuff like Lunatics, a love story for his friend Scott Spiegel, who co-wrote Evil Dead 2. He produced Hard Target and Time Cop, right? Like two Jean-Claude Van Damme movies from the 90s. He did the original two Grudge movies. He did 30 Days of Night, Don't Breathe, which Fetty Alvarez, who directed yep. that, did the Evil Dead soft reboot in 2013, which I love. Crawl, and then he just produced Evil Dead Rise. And then he's been in TV. I mean, that's the other crazy thing is he's been all over the place, especially in the 90s. The more and more I'm learning about this, too, there are a lot of directors who strictly just stick to movies. And that's all they know. And that's all they do. And there's a lot of people who just stick to TV, and that's all they know, and that's all they do. But there's a lot of directors who love jumping into TV. Sometimes it's, give me a change of pace, I want to do TV. Let me just jump into somebody else's shit and like get into the rhythm of this. Sometimes it's a necessary career sidestep to jump into TV for a little while. Karin Kasama is a good example. It's like on the tip of my head right now. You know, she does... Jennifer's Body and The Invitation, but then she's been doing a ton of TV over the last couple of years. She's doing the Yellow Jackets right now. You know, there's a lot of directors that do that, and Raimi is absolutely the same. I mean, all of fucking Xena Warrior Princess and Hercules The Legendary Journeys, which those were two massive shows in the 90s. Like, it's hard to kind of wrap your head around how big those shows were in hindsight. Those were his shows that he created and produced. And had a lot of his regular people show up in them. Well, and then he does acting roles, too. Yeah, yeah, he shows up and, like, does bit acting shit every once in a while, which I love. Yeah, one of my favorite moments of Sam Raimi is in Intruder, when he is one of the dudes that's just (laughs) killed the fuck off. He's such, like, a little dipshit. that is Scott Spiegel. Yeah. I mentioned earlier he has a relationship with the Coen brothers, which we'll get into, like, the how. I love his weird cameos in those movies. I love his cameo in Miller's Crossing where he literally just shows up as this dipshit cop during this shootout where he just steps up with a Thompson firing into this building and gets annihilated. So it's just this <laughs> weird moment in this movie <laughs> of Sam Raimi just getting fucking turned into ground beef just because, okay, yeah, cool, get Sam in. But yeah, like it's so interesting that he has just kind of been all over every aspect of it. And that he is so energetic and enthusiastic about it and still willing to try weird experimental shit. Let's just say Quibi did not work as a new streaming platform hybrid kind of thing. God, I've I've even forgotten about fucking Quibi. Oh, fucking everybody has. (laughs) Nobody remembered it. But he did this whole thing called 50 States of Fright, which was horror short films in this one giant series he did a couple of. He's still looking for, like, new and interesting things to do, which I appreciate a lot. So, you know, all that said, I think so much of this movie's history that's interesting is that it's kind of become legend in that everyone has a slightly different version of the story. And they're probably all equally true and false at the same time. 
And then there's also just this idea that it's an interesting fusion point where Raimi was drawing a lot of inspiration from Night of the Living Dead and Texas Chainsaw, like we said. But then Evil Dead kind of goes on to inspire a lot of the people, you know, after that. Yeah. So it's kind of this interesting midpoint. But Well, it's interesting we, we brought those movies up just naturally all earlier between the recommendations and just earlier in this episode because I could totally see both of those movies how they influence the evil dead oh sure with the sure. idea of just it all taking place in one area one secluded area and all this shit happening and you're going in it with ex- expectations of one thing and the thing you actually get you're so unprepared for what it actually is again kind of from the perspective of like me as no knowledge of this going into it as an audience member from the 80s you think you know what's happening like oh this might be a run-of-the-mill slasher movie these college kid teenagers whatever young adults are going to go out into the woods and act like idiots and they get killed one by one i know what i'm in for and what you get even the idea of the possessions in this movie is so different and bombastic and shocking i can't understate how much the gore with its rudimentariness is still even more disgusting with how like how low budget it feels the way they were able to utilize a low budget gore effect kelly i don't know if have you used gore in any of your filmmaking because If you've ever done that effect where like cottage cheese or whatever it was, that was like the pus coming out of the rotting corpse. If you've ever done that, that's impressive because like that legitimately made my skin squirm. The most we've done on any production has been Carol syrup and red food dye. Yeah, Yeah. That's the way we make our blood. I don't think I told y'all, but I'm going to San Diego and then we're going to be in LA for a couple days and then I'm going to come back and I, I really need to go and just clear my head. But when I get back this year, probably July is what we're looking at. We're going to start production on my next short, which is going to be a horror film. Hell yeah. Nice. This is going to be my first foray into directing horror. So I'm, uh, I'm really, really, really excited. I did, I did one short a long time ago that could be considered horror. But no, this is going to be my first balls to the wall motherfuckers getting their head cut off. Like, it's going to be, uh, I, need yeah. some, I need some gore. Oh, yes. There's so much that you can just, and, and I know Manny's going to go deeper, but like, there's so much that Sam and Bruce have talked about where it's like, this is how you should do it. I think, I think the only person that rivals them and people can debate, but I, I respect him because of the nature of him and his independent filmmaking. But that's Robert Rodriguez about doing it on your own, doing it on a budget close to no budget. Like that's one thing that I was, why I respect Robert Rodriguez so much is because fucking do it yourself, man. I think there's a whole fucking generation of people around our age that grew up in the DVD era. Oh, yeah. And those Robert Rodriguez movies all had his 10-minute film school special Mm -hmm. features. And frankly, just DVD in general, every movie that you bought had special features. And I have always been one of those people where I watch all of that shit. I feel like I learned more practical day-to-day stuff from watching all of the Lord of the Rings appendices yeah. than I did at all in film school. In terms of art design, costuming, props, camera shit, practical, this is how you plan out a shoot, all of that kind of stuff. Again, this is one of those movies where the background and like how they made this movie is so legendary that even non-horror 
film kids know all this shit about Evil Dead because that's how you make baby's first steady cam is yeah. you strap your fucking camera to a two by four <laughs> and you and your friend like run the camera, right? There's so much of that stuff that even for non-horror film kids, this movie is essential to just learning the craft. Kelly, I'm sure you could find it. Really, both of you could find it. I would hope that all the behind the scenes shit that is still in existence from the Evil Dead is readily available and out there for people. Oh, well, totally. This movie has had endless physical media, home video yeah. releases. There are tons and tons and tons of special features and shit about the making of this movie. That, and there are several books about the making of this movie. I mean, Bruce Campbell's books go into a lot of the details on how they made this, because this was one of the first major things he was in. Yeah, Kelly, I know you brought up the Bruce Campbell book that you had read earlier. How long does he spend just on the Evil Dead? Does he like devote more than one chapter? Is it- oh yeah, it's a good bit because I mean, if you think about it, that informed his whole life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. And now, what you you asked me right. that question <laughs> just made me just have an epiphany. Any time that the three of us watch a Bruce Campbell cameo in a Sam Raimi film, what's the one thing you think about? It's not him in that role in that cameo. It's Evil Dead. It's Ash. Yeah. That's how fucking big. <laughs> that movie is right particularly to his life many i wanted to speak on real quick and then we can jump right back if someone had a recipe to say this is a good movie this will be successful this will not whatever like if someone had a recipe that would be a game changer right but nobody does and i said it earlier every movie is every production is a gamble but i think what's awesome and many said the best word is craft and who am I? Fuck me, right? Like I am a filmmaker, yes, but I'm doing it in my own way. And I think that's what I love about the craft itself. But like, I was one of those guys that was like, I need to know my craft first. I need to learn my craft. Most people don't want to. You've got a lot of filmmakers that are making movies and they don't truly understand everything that comes with it. We call it the mise-en-scene. But what's beautiful about Evil Dead and Sam Raimi is the tools weren't important. Getting with friends, people you love, getting shit done, making something, that was the most important thing. And I think now we find ourselves in this era of like, yes, we need content. You know, it's just instant gratification of content. But, you know, like tools and things are more important than the actual stories that we're telling. Oh, well, you know, I shot this on a red. Well, who fucking cares? The movie was trash. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's the beautiful thing about when we look at what makes Evil Dead so amazing and so great and so beautiful also, beautifully horrific, is Everything had to come together, and and you don't see this a lot. Everything had to come together, and the beats had to be met, and that's what we got. And I think that's what's so lovely about it is, you know, there's just so much other shit that kind of takes over now. He also understood that, like you said, it's a gestaltic thing. A movie is not just, oh, I'm the director, I'm going to show up, and I'm going to, like, direct the actors and the action. No, it's sound design. It's we got to build this fucking set. It's, we got to do this fucking makeup. It's, I have to know my timing and my editing to like build a rhythm to make the scares functionally work. And so much of that comes from the fact that they have a fucking comedy background. All those guys came really more wanting to make comedies and they all loved Three Stooges and shit growing up. Well, and you needed the right performers too that were fully committed. Yeah. Yeah. You got to know that part of it. As a director, Raimi really fundamentally understood from the beginning, you have to look at all of it at the same time as this big picture thing, 
And you have to be thinking as a director all the time, what is this in product going to look like once I add in sound effects, once we do color grading, once we do all this other bullshit on the other end, what am I going for? Am I getting all the bits and pieces that I need, right? And that's what's also so interesting about this shoot is it was so fucking grueling, but from the get-go, like, he knew what he needed to get. And I think it's really tough, and this is where so many filmmakers struggle. I've had these struggles. You've had these struggles. Like, anybody that's made anything has had these struggles. You have to do a lot of planning, <laughs> and you have to do a lot of prep, because when you actually get into the shit of it, it is go time, and you have to get everything that you need so that you have all those puzzle pieces, and afterward, you can then lay all of it out and start assembling it and putting it together. But if you don't get everything that you have to have, and you don't have like a unified vision, and you're not able to communicate that to your team... Not just communicate what you want, but trust your team to also deliver on their end as well, right? And surround yourself with the right people. Not the best. Best and the right are two different things when it comes to making movies, right? But have the right team of people with you. All of that works. And I think Raimi just kind of instinctually was good at that, yeah. right? Something like this. I would way prefer the right people over the best people any day of the week. Yeah. That's why I think Evil Dead, even down to the performers, is so impressive because he is truly, it seems like, putting his performers through hell. They have to wear makeup. They have to act demonic. They have to get the shit kicked out of them. And everyone is committed on it. One of the actors gets raped by a tree. Like, it, it is horrific. And, like, you buy into it because other performance and kind of the other thing i think that's part of the secret sauce as to why this movie is so good is it also is so obvious at least between Raimi and bruce campbell that they're fans yeah. Yeah. back when we covered get out again with you kelly we joked about how jordan peele is basically just a giant horror nerd during his commentary of the movie he's always like oh yeah and this is my carpenter halloween shot oh yeah this is my hooper <laughs> shot but i feel like that's the same exact thing that Raimi was doing yeah. when he was making this movie he was probably nerding the fuck out during a lot of it. And I think a lot of that comes across. And frankly, with how successful he is now in modern times, he still seems like a giant horror nerd. I just think that's so impressive. And like Campbell at the time was maybe not the best actor, but he was the absolute right actor for Evil Dead as yeah. far as Ash and being the lead. And it's interesting too, just to see how they both kind of evolved as time went on and very much remained true to themselves, but built their personas out even further, you know? Yeah, with how perfect this movie is as a horror movie, they only continue to get better, and they yeah. only continue to develop, which is insane. Both of them, like, not just Raimi, but, like, Bruce Campbell as well in his acting. So, Kelly, you mentioned a second ago, you know, how do you find the secret formula? How do you find the hidden structure that makes not just a horror movie, but just any movie, right? I think that's one of the things that works so well about this movie in particular is it is pure in its simplicity. You know, they studied a lot of horror movies from this era and tried to figure out what works about the sequence. Why do we respond to this? That moment in Texas Chainsaw where old boy wanders into the foyer of that house and then Leatherface just pops out of nowhere, sledges him, he falls and hits the ground, he drags the body in and slams the door behind it. It's like, such a fucking fast, terrifying, what the fuck did I just see kind of moment. But it's stuff like that that they studied to see. How is this edited? How is this put together? What is the timing like? What shots are they getting? How is this 
moment being shown to us and communicated to us, the audience. And that's really how they built this movie from the ground up. Because at the end of the day, like we said, this is just a bunch of kids who go to fuck around at a cabin, unleash an evil force, and one by one it picks them off. I mean, it's a very simple plot. Well, and I think he's smart by taking it a step further that not only we're in a slasher movie when they're picked off they're gone but in this movie their corpses are puppeted by the demon taking that horror yet another step and such a simple idea but there's definitely a couple of elements that the movie is simplistic why it is still scary is because it is preying on these very very base human fears one is just fear of the fucking woods it's fear of the dark it's fear of the unknown. <laughs> yeah, fuck you, Aaron. Even in a cabin, it's camping sucks. We'll never agree on that. <laughs> Whatever. I love camping. <laughs> okay, have fun getting killed by what's what's the demon? Kandarian demon. Yeah, Kandarian. Yeah, Kandarian. But there's something about you know modern society, modern living, going back into the woods, going back to like where we came from, nature and this primal thing. It's kind of scary and it's kind of unknowable. Yep. And yep. I agree. There is something primal about being back in what is essentially, as you know, the fucking Lars von Trier movie Antichrist puts it, the devil's church, nature, being back in this kind of weirdly unknowable space that is scary. Being in the dark woods, like going camping, especially like soft tent camping, can be scary. You know what's scary? When you wake up at night and there's like something brushing against your tent. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's really just like a fucking raccoon that's nosing (laughs) around. But in your brain, you're just petrified, right? Yeah. All of those kinds of things. (laughs) Hearing the wind, hearing the creaking, like all that primal shit gets to you. All the animals that are just screaming, fuck me, fuck me. But you're hearing it. It's like a human scream. Coming to get you, bitch. (laughs) Coming to get your soul. Well, to that point, just the woods themselves being creepy, like. And here's a little bit, of, I guess, of the camp you kind of see that he's starting to build, even though this movie is pretty much just a serious horror movie. Anytime, like, they're outdoors during the night, you're hearing, like, wolves howling. It's doing, like, the 1940s wolfman. There's always wind going. Yeah, yeah there's always fog. Yeah, there's always yeah. wind. There's always just the classic Universal Monsters horror tropes. He's even including that. But then you have demons, and yeah. it's horrifying. And real talk, too, a couple of years ago, I say a couple years ago, shit, it's been a while now, but early on in Heather and I dating, we took like our first actual serious couples trip up to Canada to go to a friend's wedding. So we drove literally from South Mississippi all the way up to Alberta, Canada, and we were like staying with friends or staying at cheap hotels or camping places, right? Because while we were in Canada, we went to Banff and did soft side camping and everything else. But, uh... On the way back down, we stopped in Lewis and Clark National Forest in Montana, and this is in the mountains. This was in late June. It was fucking snowing. We go to this actual log cabin that we rented at the state park. The cabin itself was kind of a ways from the parking area. You have to kind of hoof through a little path to get there. And then when we got there, it's dark. There's no lights. They don't have anything turned on. There's no, like, street lights. The power to the actual cabin was shut off, and we had to go turn it on and get the keys out of this little lockbox and everything. I mean, there was... So this is an Evil Dead cabin. (laughs) Right? So there was nobody else there. There were no other cars. Nobody else was there because this was a weird 
day of the week or something. I don't know. Well, pick your poison. You're either getting killed off by Freddy, by Jason, or by <laughs> yeah. the Evil Dead. <laughs> so we get into this cabin, and it is very much a like crash here, tear the place up and party. We don't give a fuck kind of cabin. It is three or four sets of bunk beds that are literally just a plank and you just put your own sleeping bag out on top of that, I guess. The bathroom was a completely separate detached building, so if you needed to go piss or anything, you literally had to go out in the dark and walk down a path to the bathroom. There was no running water in this place. Oh, no. Anyway, we get there. For me, I'm fine. I'm used to camping. Like, soft side camping's fine. God, you're a fucking maniac. <laughs> Heather was like, no, for real, this is fucked. I want you to go in. Yeah. You need to go in and like check and make sure that there's nobody in there. You need to make sure that there's no dead bodies in there. We're going to look under every fucking piece of furniture. We're going to open every drawer. We're going <laughs> to like at one point she literally was like, I want to make sure there's not a fucking Necronomicon hidden in a closet <laughs> somewhere. You know, she was like genuinely fucking terrified and uneasy through the entire rest of the night just because the place was so isolated and dark and empty and we were truly fucking alone if anything happened we would have been fucked and the evil dead it doesn't help that fear whatsoever yeah because it's like the worst case scenario as to what could happen to you yeah and so that brings me to the second point as far as why this movie is so effective is you can't fucking leave there's no getting out, all right? So it does that other thing where it completely isolates them and traps them in this space. Yeah, because the trees will literally ravage you if you try and escape. Well, they also try to leave, and, like, the car is fucked up. They yep. eventually get the car going, and they get to the bridge, and the bridge is all fucked up. A demon is out there stalking you if you're yeah. out there too long. There's yeah. literally... Again, we're getting into two, but, like, there's parts in two where he will literally drive and, like, end right back up at the cabin again. There's all these things that are happening to keep you there, and you cannot fucking leave. I will say, too, the new movie Evil Dead Rise, okay, cool, they're in a major city. They're literally in downtown L.A. Sure, you can totally get out of that situation. The way that the movie keeps them in that area and keeps them from escaping is, like, very interesting, and it's a lot of good Chekhov's broken garage door clicker and <laughs> Chekhov's, like, shitty elevator, and just, like, all this stuff that keeps them from leaving, right? That aspect of, you're fucked. There's nowhere for you to go. You cannot escape is such a primal thing. So, for this movie, then, what is the aspect of it that scares you guys the most? Because I can tell you right now, the thing that scared me legitimately on this watch and would have absolutely fucked my world up if I watched this as a kid was actually Linda, when Linda is possessed. Well, so that's the next point that I have is the Deadites themselves is a completely different kind of thing than what people were used to seeing. I mean, the only yeah. other example I could really think of that's similar is there are moments with Reagan and the Exorcist where the demon is taunting and shit talking and cruel yeah. and joking. The entire, like, your mother sucks cocks in hell, all of that is basically just deadite to the max. Yeah. Because we're, we're still ways off from Freddy cutting jokes as he's killing yeah. you in your dreams. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm sure there were plenty of exorcist knockoffs that tried to do the same thing, but otherwise, as far as, like, successful popular yeah. horror movies, yeah, you're right. Having a malevolent force that's not just... Oh, I am the evil. I'm coming for you. Having a malevolent force that is actively like, 
Haha, you piece of shit. Yeah, that's why you fucked up and uh, I'm gonna like poke you in the eye. Ash, help me. Let me out of here. I'm, I'm all right now. Unlock this chain and let me out. Cheryl? Bastards! Why are you torturing me like this? Why? <laughs> Shut up! We're gonna get you. We're gonna get you. Not another peep. Time to go to sleep. There's something more terrifying about an evil force that is not just malevolent, but is gonna like fuck with you on top of that yeah. and fuck with you saying you're screwed and I know it and you know it and I'm going to give you a hard fucking time about it the entire time I'm tormenting you. I'll speak more from the filmmaking aspect. Like I think Manny really digs in psychologically. For me, some of the stuff that Raimi created, I had never seen a film at all. You know, typically you have this ever present being. You have something very tangible that you can touch and like yeah. That's fucking scary, right? You can touch it. This is just an invisible force. Oh, man. And and the shots where the camera's swooping, you know, and yeah. cutting through trees and breaking limbs and shit. I'm like, what is this? I think that's what M. Night Shyamalan tried to do with the happening. That was a joke. But <laughs> yeah, he, he tried. But what was is so great about it is what you don't see. And I've told y'all, I've said this on y'all's podcast before. Like, to me, what you don't see is always fucking scarier than what you yeah. do see. And I had never seen, I forgot what the cam that he, what Sam Raimi actually like coined it as. It's, I'm losing it now, but. I think that is just jokingly called Raimi cam. I think he called it Raimi cam. It's just their improvised steady cam. Yeah. You are in the perspective of the monster. Yes. You don't actually see the monster, but you are seeing what it sees and that, as it stalks you. That's fucking scary, right? Yeah. Was this the first instance of that in a popular film? No. I don't, I really don't think it's the first instance. I do know it's the first time I had ever seen it. It's the first time it was ever done like this. Okay, Cause yeah. I mean, you got to think. That's what I meant. Yeah. Not absolute first. Yeah. But like, yeah, yeah. Done in this way. Yeah, because Halloween, Black Christmas, yeah. they yeah. have killer POV. Right. But it's very anchored because you are yeah. seeing a human's perspective. It's not like this movie where the camera is completely unbound and yeah. it's flying through windows and it is going over branches and it's starting Which at like really crazy. high angles and it's turning and swooping like. Yeah, it's like knocking trees out of the way. There's yeah. something yeah. way more disturbing about knowing that the camera shouldn't be doing what it's doing. It's kind of what's unsettling about, as we discussed on our episode of Lost Highway, all the like footage of them inside their house, right? All the like weird creeper footage that they're getting on those VHS tapes. God, that gives me chills just thinking about it, yeah. As those tapes progress, the camera becomes more and more unmoored to the point where like, you're seeing stuff on these VHS tapes, but the camera is literally floating down the hallway in a way that it shouldn't be. Or like it's up on the ceiling looking down at them. Exactly. Like yeah. and that's what's so unsettling about this demon vision, essentially, is yeah. just it's completely unbound by like human reality. 
Well, and then you throw in the whole aspect, which at this point wasn't necessarily an original idea, but the idea that we explored in zombie movies and Night of the Living Dead of these are your loved ones yeah. that are literally just meat bags now. Yeah. No matter what, they are gone. And the thing that's replaced them is this demon, like you said, Aaron, that is taunting you. Because sometimes, like, especially with the later Elm Street movies, Freddy almost gets too jokey to like where he's no longer being scary. He's just kind of almost. Yeah, almost. <laughs> but he's not being scary. It's just funny. But like, at least in this movie, just again, speaking only on the first movie, the possessed deadites are just generally terrifying and they're fucking with them, but they're not jokey about it. Yeah, they're mocking them and they're being yeah, sarcastic, right. but they are not joking. That's what's extra scary because they are like each one of you are going to die and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. We're going to prolong it. And even at one point, Ash himself yells at the air. He's like, what are you waiting for? Just do it already. Like, why are you fucking with me like this? The other part of it, too, you know, to your point about it's your friends, it's your family, and they are now just essentially these empty vessels. That's the other thing that's kind of terrifying is there's no fix for this. Yeah. No. There's no way to, like, lift the possession. There's no way to destroy this evil force. You can only destroy the vessel. That's it. And dismember it so they can't move, basically. Yeah, and it's not as simple as destroy the brain or a stake to the heart. No, it is just you have to completely destroy the bag of flesh that once was your friend. That is the only way to do it. But there is no destroying the spirit. You're fucked. And once they get it in them, they are fucked. There's no coming back from that. And that's the other thing. And this is something I love that the movie doesn't tell you. It doesn't explain, like, how it possesses people. No. It just starts possessing them randomly, and that's even more scary. And that gets me to, like, the last thing I was going to bring up is, what is so scary about this movie is there are no rules. Yeah. There is no formula. There are no rules. There is no, if you do this, it will do this, and it will... The only rule in this entire movie is if you speak these fucking words this evil force will awaken. But there is no other rules. There's no catch. There's no gimmick. There's no anything else, right? The only advice they're given is, like you said, cut off all the limbs and stuff. But even that doesn't seem to work 100% of the time either. Exactly, yeah, yeah, which is cool. Well, even too, I guess, spoiler alert, we're talking about this movie that's 40 fucking years old that we've been talking about for almost two hours. But, you know, (laughs) seemingly, the solution is burn the book. And that, maybe destroys the spirit, right? And we see the book gets destroyed, but even that doesn't stop because then the movie comes back and you see the force is still out there and it like gets ash at the very, very end. So like even that doesn't fix the solution. Again, going back to Ari Aster and I guess spoilers for Hereditary, but there is something that happens part of the way through that movie where they think, oh yeah, this is the solution. This will fix everything. And they try that thing And it just makes the situation actually worse. (laughs) So it's interesting how this movie also kind of plays with that idea. That's a fun horror trope, too, that only seems to work in horror, because, like, Ringu does the same thing. We're going to fix the problem, and it turns out, like, nope, you made it worse. Yeah. But I love just the fact that there are no rules. This is just an unknowable thing. It's not called The Book of the Dead, which is what its original title was. This movie is just called the evil dead and that's all there is fucking to it right (laughs) having such a blank wide open field 
I don't think it's cheating at all. I've heard people say like, oh, it's just cheating and there's no like actual setup. There's no rules. There's no plot. But that's what makes this so fucking scary is it makes it more it scary. Yeah, straps yeah. you into this roller coaster for an hour and a half. It's all random. Yeah. It's a random group of kids that randomly get fucked up by this yeah. random demon that randomly possesses them one by yeah. one. Because it feels like Ash himself is only the main character because he's the only one that it doesn't possess until the very end. Maybe depending on what you think happens in the end. He's not the hero at all in terms of, oh, I'm Mr. Protagonist. Yeah. He's just the last one alive. Yeah. And if we want to talk about another thing, this movie, maybe at least not necessarily did it on purpose. It's like fears. We talk about fears, phobias, themes that these movies explore, right? The idea of shell shock and trauma in the moment. I feel like Bruce Campbell's performance in this is amazing from yeah. just your brain's broken. Yeah. The closest thing you can think of is a soldier in the middle of action, like in the middle of a war and something horrific's happening. Your brain breaking. You don't know what to do. Half the time he's just standing in the corner with his mouth wide open and shit's happening around him. Half the time he's screaming. He gets fucked up in this movie and like not just physically, like he has a mental breakdown at least twice in this movie, it feels like. And that's on top of all the demonic shit, on top of everything else. So there you also seeing a man break mentally which is not always an easy thing to watch, too, to be honest. Yeah. Well, uh, let's go ahead and transition into talking about like the actual production of the movie. So as we're kind of getting into production talk, just some quick base background on Raimi and Bruce Campbell before we get started. So Raimi, like Kelly was saying, born in Royal Oak, Michigan, which is like one of the suburbs of Detroit. So they kind of grew up right on the edge of this. So did Bruce Campbell. They went to the same high school together, Groves High School, and they made Super 8 movies together growing up. So, like, even from an early age, the two of them and Rob Tappert were all fucking around and making short films. Sam Raimi, born into a large Jewish family. His younger brother, Ted, is an actor who's been in a insane shit ton of stuff, um, including... Yeah, the most important acting gig he ever had motherfucking blood rage yeah condom <laughs> salesman in bathroom in blood rage <laughs> his older brother ivan is a physician and screenwriter a couple of sam raimi's movies have been movies that he has co-written with ivan he has an older brother named sander who died when he was 15 in a tragic accidental drowning wow. and that was kind of this defining moment for their family i didn't know about that actually yep which is this is like a whole weird side tangenty thing, but interesting detail about the new Doctor Strange movie, because there is an element of Doctor Strange kind of remembering his younger sibling dying when he was a kid. And interesting that that element is in the script, because this is something that Scott Derrickson maybe wrote, yeah. and he yeah. also had a sibling who died in a similar way. Yeah. So it's just like weird coincidence. Raimi turned 20 right before filming began. Wow. That's how young he was, right? That's crazy. Just super random. But, you know, I always say this because this is my draw line, but I think how old was Orson Welles when he made Citizen Kane? 26. Shit like that will never happen again. I hate to say yeah. it. You know, never say never, but I'm like. It's so rare. Yeah, man. Yeah, I mean, there's technically always going to be an exception, but yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. But I can't fathom making that's anything crazy. like Evil that's Dead crazy. when I was fucking 20 years <laughs> 20. old. No. Yeah, that's crazy. Bruce Campbell, his father was an advertising exec and college professor by day, but a theater actor and director by night. So Bruce kind of came by acting and theatricality naturally 
he honestly feels like he came from a background uh, on stage before anything. Like he yeah. just see, feels like a stage performer to me. He is a co-producer on this movie because not only did he do every fucking job imaginable while making this movie, but he literally used his parents' house as collateral for a loan to finish the movie. I did, yeah. And blow the negative up to 35 millimeter. There would not be an Evil Dead if there was no Bruce Campbell, not just from like the fact that he played Ash. Like, he's integral to getting this movie made. All of them, including, again, their friend Rob Tappert, he's kind of the third part of this triangle. They were all huge fans of the Three Stooges, which absolutely comes through in every fucking movie that Sam Raimi has ever made. It's very obvious. You know, I mentioned this on our episode for Devil's Backbone, that Del Toro is maybe the hard director that I personally identify with the most as far as storytelling and thematics and all that kind of thing. And again, not that I'm going to say that I have even a tenth of the talent in his pinky finger, but just the types of stories he tells, I think, resonate with me personally in terms of the stories that I have written and that kind of stuff. Raimi, I think, is maybe the director who has influenced me the most in terms of my, like, visual brain language and editing. I've joked before on this show, I literally made a fucking 45-minute long video for, like, a math project in high school, and so much of it is just informed by, like, what Evil Dead looks like and how things are shot, how things are edited. Basically, the entire scene in the second movie where he's building his fucking chainsaw arm. I've ripped that off so many times with other stuff that I've made, right? Just the Three Stooges part is something else that I can fully identify with. Growing up, I watched an insane amount of Three Stooges and Looney Tunes and all that kind of shit because it was just what was on TV and it was free. We would rent Three Stooges VHS tapes all the time growing up. This is totally aside, but like it's always interesting when people have those kind of influences going into horror. Because I'm thinking back to like way back, Aaron, when we covered the people under the stairs. That's some Looney Tunes ass Three Stooges shit happening yeah. in this otherwise pretty serious horror movie going on. And so it's interesting that same with Raimi and Campbell. Like it's been also. said a thousand times by people smarter than all of us. Horror and comedy are like that because it's all about timing it's all about build up and delivery it's all about giving people that punch and laughing and like screaming are just kind of so close in terms of where that human emotional roller coaster peak is it, it all goes hand in hand right but anyway yeah together with rob tappert they made a lot of short films uh, and they specifically made a comedy short called clockwork and a comedy feature titled it's murder which was co-written with scott spiegel again who would co-write Evil Dead 2 and Intruder, which both of us love. And then ultimately they made a short film called Within the Woods in 1978, which was a proof of concept movie for Evil Dead to say, hey, we can make a movie. Here's what we're going for. Please give us money. And with that short film, they managed to raise $90,000 just begging and borrowing from fucking everyone that they knew in town. It's interesting. You can watch it on YouTube in a very, very rough form. It's like 30 minutes, and it is basically Ellen Sandweiss, who plays Cheryl in Evil Dead. She is kind of the, like, final girl, 
and Bruce Campbell is actually the like monster stalker killer character. It's kind of flipping that whole thing, but it's basically the same idea. It's just him stalking her, just the general horror of like, oh, I'm stuck in this one particular spot, blah, blah, blah. So it's a lot of the same stuff. Have both of you seen it before? Because I, I wanted to try and watch it before we recorded. I didn't get a chance to. I rewatched it. I saw it years ago, and I rewatched it before this. I was going to say, it was, it's been so long. But yeah, it's definitely on YouTube if anybody wants to check it out. Again, it's very rough because this was... Again, a movie that they shot on 16 millimeter. <laughs> it's basically an SOV movie. <laughs> oh, worse than that, even because it's 16 millimeter, two VHS, and then digitized for fucking YouTube. So it's kind of rough to watch, but it's there if you're interested. As far as other associates go, I mentioned earlier the Cohen brothers. So Joel Cohen was the assistant editor on this movie. This was his first professional gig. He and Sam Raimi would get to be pretty good fucking friends to the point that Sam and Bruce would later help Joel and Ethan Cohen raise funds for their first feature, Blood Simple. And then they also starred in a proof of concept short film, just like they made featuring scenes from the script as a means to get funding. So, you know, Ethan saw like, oh, that's pretty fucking ingenious to just make a short film of what you're actually fully wanting to make and use that as your selling card, right, to gain funds. And, you know, they go from there. So it's interesting to think that we would not have the Coen brothers if not for Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell. That's fucking cool. Lucy Lawless is another person in this whole group. She saw Evil Dead on its release. Was fucking horrified, specifically by the trigger <laughs> scene, and was like, who the fuck would make this movie? And yeah, of course, she goes on to star in Xena and Spartacus, which is also produced by Raimi and Tappert, and Ash vs. Evil Dead, and she has been married to Tappert, Tappert yeah. for like 35 years. A they have a couple time. of kids together. Yeah. And it's gone on to be the sexual awakening of a lot of people from our generation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lucy Flawless, am I right? She's also a weird cameo in Spider-Man. She's been all over the place. Yeah. Here's the other crazy detail, and I love that like, this has come out in the last couple of years. At one point... Sam and maybe Ted Raimi lived in a shitty house in Silver Lake with Joel and Ethan Cohen and Frances McDormand, because she and Joel were together by that time. Holly Hunter, who is also friends with all them, and of course she goes on to be in Raising Arizona and shit, and Kathy Bates. They all lived in the same fucking house together. Oh, wow. That is, let me count. One, two, three, four, five Academy Award winners of that whole group. <laughs> Some of them multiple Academy Award yeah. winners. It's interesting that even from very early on, Sam Raimi was making a ton of connections and kind of bringing a lot of people in with him. And again, being loyal to those people and sticking by them. I mean, he would go on to like co-write Hudsucker Proxy with the Coen brothers and he would show up in their movies and cameo roles, and the Coen brothers will show up in his movies and cameo roles. So, like, they have worked together on and off since always. As far as the cast goes, very small, tight cast for this movie. Yeah. I mean, that's always one of the things that you have to do as a starting-off filmmaker. Like, you gotta keep your shit simple. Five people and then a couple that are uncredited. Yeah. It's basically just Tappert and Sam Raimi are the uncredited ones. <laughs> the uncredited <laughs> part we'll talk about in a second, too, because that's like its own hilarious thing. So obviously Bruce Campbell, right? 
This is the character that will define his entire career, Ash. He obviously would go on to be in so much fucking horror stuff. I mean, Crime Wave, which is the second movie that Raimi did, which it is more of a like slapsticky yeah. crime comedy. That movie's a fucking mess, but I love it. He's in Maniac Cop 1 and 2, yeah. fucking Moon Trap, Intruder, which we've talked about, Sundown, The Vampire in Retreat, which I'll go ahead and stop there and plug another podcast. Check out the Bruce Campbell podcast. They have been on our show. Uh, we went on their show. We kind of did a swap off. So they came on our show and talked Blood Diner. We went on their show and talked Sundown, The Vampire in Retreat. They have a fucking hilarious Animorphs podcast that they just wrapped up recently, and now they're doing a Bruce Campbell podcast. So give those guys a listen, because basically every movie that we just ran down right there, they're covering. He is also in Darkman, Lunatic's Love Story, Mind Warp, Waxwork 2, which we have all discussed. And Kelly, we will probably get you back on for that eventually. Yeah. Are you a fan of Waxwork 2? Of course. It's still Anthony Hickox, and it's amazing. We just watched it the other day, actually. And I was like, nice. yeah. I was like fuck, it's still good. Is it not fun as shit? Like, it's I so honestly kind of so think fun. I like two better than one, just because. Really? Okay. We're going to have to do it then. <laughs> when you watch it, you'll understand why, though. It is. Yeah. I hadn't seen it in a couple of years. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Bruce is also in Hudsucker Proxy. And then he's got his own show, Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., which is a fucking fun, weird Western show. He's also in Congo. He's we have to shout out Congo. Congo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he is in John Carpenter's Escape from L.A. He is a recurring character in both Xena and Hercules. He had another weird show. It was like a steampunk show called Jack of All Trades. Uh, he's in The Majestic. He's in all three of the Spider-Man movies. He's in Alien Apocalypse, Sky High. He plays fucking Elvis in Bubba Hotel, oh, which yeah. is a Don Coscarelli movie that I yeah. fucking love. Yeah. He's in Lucky McKee's The Woods. And then he's in kind of the like meta comedy, My Name is Bruce. I never played as big a fan as I am of fucking Hellboy. I apparently never played the, like, Hellboy video game that came out a couple of years back. Wasn't he the helper? He's the voice of Lobster Johnson, who is the, like, square-jawed, fucking American crime-fighting, Nazi-punching, don't-take-any-shit, right. okay. secret okay. agent guy. Perfect fucking role for him in yeah. a Hellboy game. Yeah. He is the voice of the mayor and Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. He was on burn notice for the entire run of that show. That was kind of one of his major, more recent things. Um, he's in Cars 2. He shows up in fucking season two of Fargo playing Ronald Reagan. <laughs> and of course, he's in Ash vs. Evil Dead, a complete full like continuation of this whole series. And most recently, he was in a movie called Black Friday, which is kind of a like retail holiday horror comedy. Then he's fucking Pizza Papa in Multiverse of Madness. I also would like to shout out. One of those X-File episodes I just saw completely out of context when I was younger. And it turns out it's actually one of the more famous X-Files episodes. He's in an episode called Terms of Endearment from season six of X-Files. He plays a demon in that one, right? He plays a demon in. His character yeah. is fascinating because it's not necessarily an evil demon. It's yeah. a very interesting story. Bruce Campbell, too, has been on every fucking TV show. Like, I yeah. don't even have to mention that, right? And the rest of the cast is interesting because it's, a lot of people who didn't necessarily go on to do a whole lot of serious acting. So his sister in the movie, Cheryl, is played by Ellen Sandweiss. She basically didn't act for like 20 years after this. She made con appearances. 
But then she came back to acting and was in Satan's Playground, My Name is Bruce, where she kind of plays herself. Brutal Massacre, a comedy, which is also like a bunch of horror people kind of playing themselves. And then she returns as Cheryl in Ash vs. Evil Dead. And when I was watching through that show a couple of years ago, I was like, oh, wait, fuck yeah, they actually got the actress to come back. That's wild. She is also in a bunch of Raimi's earlier shorts. Like I mentioned, she's the co-lead in Within the Woods. Betsy Baker plays Linda, who is Ash's love interest in this movie. Also the scariest fucking part of this movie, in my opinion. She was in two TV movies after this, but then also basically stopped acting until the mid-2000s. She's on an episode of Tim and Eric. She is also in Brutal Massacre, some TV stuff. She's in True Blood, American Horror Story, Baskets. She shows up in an Ash vs. Evil Dead short. She was in Sharp Objects, Shameless, Lucifer, so a bunch of TV stuff. Well, and the funny thing, too, about those two, specifically Ellen and Betsy, they also have a pretty recent credit from last year. I don't know if they actually, like, did more modern recording, but they actually voiced their characters in the Evil Dead video game. So that was one thing I was going to mention here at the end is everybody in the cast actually gets voice credits for Evil Dead, which makes me think they didn't do any new recording. It was just all, like, audio from the movie. I think Campbell did new recording, but like... He did, yes. Yeah. And the reason why I think that is Richard DeManincore, who plays Scott, he is in Crime Wave, the next Sam Raimi movie, and then like nothing else. Teresa Tilly, that played Shelley, she's in some TV stuff, but then like nothing else. And funny enough, the two of them, to avoid being penalized for working on a non-union shoot, they both used pseudonyms for this movie. So like... Richard DeManincore is Hal Delrick, and Teresa Tilly is Sarah York. Like, that is how they're credited in this, but it was strictly just to, like, not get in trouble with SAG. And then lastly, Bob Dorian, who is the AMC movie guy who did all these movie introductions. He's the voice on the reel-to-reel that's talking about the book. And everybody in this cast, except for DeManincore, They all appear in Sam Raimi's Oz the Great and Powerful, which is a fucking weird, messy flop of a movie. And this is one of those weird things where, again, I did not realize until later just how much of a connection my personal sensibilities and like growing up and everything is connected with Raimi. But I fucking love Wizard of Oz. That was one of my favorite things growing up. So like I have a lot of love in my heart and nostalgia for Wizard of Oz. And I will say that movie is not it. Sorry. <laughs> Just the fact that like the two leads of that movie are James Franco and Mila Kunis. That was the nail in the coffin right away for me. Yeah. Anyway, a rare miss by Mr. Amy. Yeah. <laughs> so like as far as the production of this goes, by all accounts, this was one of the most miserable fucking shoots ever. Ramey and Tappert specifically loved fucking antagonizing the cast to get more genuine reactions from all of them. Uh, they pulled a Kubrick. Yeah. <laughs> and Bruce especially got fucking bullied constantly. 
he hurt his ankle at one point, and they just relentlessly would poke at him with sticks just to <laughs> antagonize him. Because, like, I know he becomes badass Ash in the second in Army Darkness, but is it just me or is he a major fucking nerd in this movie? Oh, yeah. <laughs> at least in the beginning. I mean, that's kind of the point. Oh, yeah. yeah. That is kind of the point in this one is he is realizing through the trauma that he's experienced that he has to step up and, like, take charge and do something about all this, right? But dude looks like he has a bowl cut in the beginning and, oh, like, yeah. has a unibrow. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting too because they shot this movie and had to go back and like shoot some other stuff so like you can see bruce campbell kind of age as the movie goes yeah they decided to shoot this in tennessee instead of michigan partly because tennessee their state government was actually kind of excited about like yeah look, please come shoot a movie here also their thought was like well hell it's late in the year we do not want to be in michigan during winter instead Tennessee had the fucking coldest, shittiest winter in, like, decades. Wow. <laughs> and Michigan had one of the most, like, mild, very nice winters in decades. Oh, wow. So, like, that was already just cursed from the beginning. It was so cold that the camera and other equipment would often freeze, and they literally had to put the shit by the fireplace to thaw it out. The first day of shooting, they got lost in the woods. So, yay, off to a perfect start. <laughs> Campbell allegedly got some teeth knocked out. When one of the camera operators slipped and smashed the camera into his face, the cabin itself was a real cabin. So this was like an existing cabin. They did not build it. It was an abandoned cabin, and the owner leased it to them with the promise that they just undo any kind of modifications that they make during the shoot. But when they got there, the place had just been open. So like cows had just been wandering through for years so when they got there there was just like four mm. inches of cow shit all over the floor oh. one of bruce campbell's first jobs on this movie was literally shoveling cow shit out <laughs> the cabin itself has since burned down Ah, uh, that sucks that does yeah suck. supposedly by like irresponsible teenagers Raimi has at times joked that he did it but like Timeline-wise, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Man, that, that would have been such a cool like horror artifact to Definitely. still have around. Definitely. Oh, totally. And for a while, it was. People were tracking down and going there and finding it, but too many people started going and vandalizing the area, oh. right? But now, apparently, the chimney is all that remains. And they added the chimney for the shoot. And supposedly, there's like a time capsule buried underneath by the crew. The entire fucking cast and crew, 13 people, all stayed in this cabin through the entire shoot with no plumbing, Woof. no running water. There was like literally a phone line hooked up to the place, but you know, that's it. How far from town were they? Oh, this is in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. This is way in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, and the entire wow. long driveway leading up to the cabin was fucking frozen. So they literally had to park all the way at the end of the long driveway and like hike all the equipment up to the cabin every day. And some idiot broke in and stole a bunch of power tools, not realizing that the camera itself was a fucking $30,000 camera that they were renting. So, like, somebody had to stay with the equipment at all times. But, yeah, the entire cast and crew, all 13 people, stayed in this fucking cabin over winter. Because it was cold, they were constantly fucking sick. They were going days without showering. By the end, when they were just shooting exterior stuff, they were literally burning all the fucking furniture inside just to stay warm. There was no cellar at all. There is no cellar. That was completely an illusion. They literally removed some of the floorboards and dug out a section of the ground about four feet deep. 
just enough to like put a small little ladder there to sell the illusion that there's a cellar. But the actual stone cellar that you see in the movie, that is a farmhouse back up in Michigan that's owned by Tappert's family. That's impressive. And then one of the rooms is Raimi's parents' garage. That's some movie magic shit right there. I always love that. Yeah. So like they knew we don't even have to fuck with the idea of having a cellar because we'll shoot that back later, right? By winter of 1980, the movie was only half complete because they just literally ran out of money. So Raimi, Bruce, and Tappert called in every family favor. They took out shitty predatory high interest loans and just started cold calling small businesses around the Detroit area for money. <laughs> I like how Campbell was on board doing all this and yet he was terrorized. <laughs> yeah. It kind of worked out though, because a lot of the small businesses that they cold called for money instead were able to hook them up with food and gasoline and like stuff like that. that they still needed. Very cool. Tom Sullivan was the makeup and models guy, and he worked with them previously on Within the Woods. So he kind of came along. There eventually is a point of no return where, like, most of the fucking cast and crew has bailed because they got their stuff done and they just fled. And Sullivan's one of the few people that supposedly, like, stayed in through the whole fucking thing. And all the makeup and everything, like we've talked about, is bug nuts for this. The fake blood is... Just the usual caro syrup and red food coloring. God, and you're still using it now, Kelly. It's always worked. It's been a timeless thing. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I'm pretty sure I probably got that from Sam Raimi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just being honest, yeah. But because the fake blood is basically just sugar, yeah. right? Supposedly, Bruce's shirt literally fucking shattered at one point <laughs> when he was trying to put it back on because it just had days and days and days of this fucking fake blood dried uh, into it. And he went to go put it on it just like broken half. Does that shit also attract insects and everything, too? Yes. I would yeah. say depending on where you're shooting, that's why you got to be very, you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, you know, yeah. You also got to keep in mind like heat. So this was an instance of, oh, God, it's so fucking unbearable cold. Well, most movie sets, the problem is heat because yeah. you've got all the yeah. lights yeah. you're usually inside you're usually not running any kind of ac because you don't need that background hum while you're trying to record audio so most film sets are like fucking hot they actually had the complete opposite issue with the second movie where they filmed it mostly in like a school gym at a high school in north carolina during the summer where it was like 110 degrees at all times oh, no. but yeah they used oatmeal creamed corn milk coffee fucking alpo dog food they used all of this nasty food stuff for the gore and goo effects and the whole idea was that the milk and the green blue and yellow goops were all just kind of this ploy to keep the movie from getting an x rating or at least that's what they thought was if we don't use blood we can be as gory as we want yeah. and we can get away with it Something about it is even grosser. It's even worse, yeah. right? Yeah, it's like yeah. so much nastier. Because again, like it's supposed to be, I guess, pus, but like you know, it's like curdled it's milk so and nasty, cheese and though. yeah. Even that made my skin crawl. And this yeah. is a fucking movie that's forty years old. Yeah, the white contacts that they have in when they're fully possessed. God, so good, so creepy. This is back in the day before contact technology was that great. So these were like these fucking. Thick as hell sclero lenses that are super (laughs) uncomfortable, they're hard to put in, and you have to take them out after only about 15 minutes because your eyes literally have to breathe 
right? So like once they popped those contacts in, they had to film the scenes that they were trying to get and move on. And you're only supposed to wear them in your eyes for like so many minutes per day, right? So they were also skirting on that. I'd imagine you can't really see well. Oh, right? not at all. Nope. You can't see at all. They're yeah. completely no vision whenever they're wearing the contacts. And they're running around and screaming and shit. <laughs> uh-huh. Which that's also part of why they look so weird and janky while they're moving. Because yeah. they're having to kind of be careful as they're walking to not, you know, trip. And they also can't see, so they're kind of looking in the wrong direction, right? Like, that's just why it's so unsettling. Like I joked about earlier, all the demon POV scenes are shot by strapping the camera to a 2x4 to kind of create a, like, wob, wob, wob steady cam. I love that. Sam and Rob would grab each end of the steady cam board and just run through the woods, literally carrying this board, running through the woods with the camera just kind of wob, wob, wob on the middle. And it's totally effective. It absolutely works. I have literally ripped off and copied the same exact thing before. <laughs> did they speed it up in like editing or yeah. something? Yeah, there, there's always little bits and things like that where they did it in post. Not only is it moving janky, but like it's moving unnaturally fast. Yeah. yeah. The entire movie was shot in continuity. Damn. So like as it plays out story-wise, that's the order that they're filming in, right? Which that's unusual. We talked about that before. Most of the time you shoot a movie completely out of order. Just based on difficulty of what you're shooting, scheduling, availability of sets, etc. Now, they shot this whole movie in sequence, which is why there's kind of a midway point where it drops out and it's basically just Bruce for a while. Because by that point, they kind of got everything that they needed from the main actors and moved on from there. Betsy Baker was literally induced to cry by using chopped onions. And Tapper literally just said it was cheaper to buy onions and chop them up than to buy Visine to put drops in her eyes <laughs> to make her look like she's crying. <laughs> Derek, you mentioned earlier a lot of the, like, uncredited people. So this is a fucking fun, weird thing that I love the weird, goofy history of. You notice in the credits, they are referred to as fake shimps. So this is a term coined by Raimi from this shoot that is now like an industry term where an actor who has either bailed from production or they needed to do reshoots and just that person wasn't available or they've died during production would be doubled by another actor and or using stock footage from like earlier outtakes or different movies entirely in some cases to fill in the scenes. A la Paul Walker and, and his brother filling in. That's a perfect yeah. example of like a fake shimp where they literally used Paul Walker's brother and like CGI'd his face over him, right? That is a modern version of fake shimping. This came from the Three Stooges. So the whole idea was the Stooges were contractually assigned to make four more shorts after Shimp Howard died. So they literally used another actor named Joe Palma dressed him up, put a wig on him that made him look enough like Shimp, and used him as a stand-in. And they were usually shooting him, like, from behind, where you could see his face, or, like, with his face kind of obscured to get the shots that they needed. And then they were also literally going back and getting old footage of Shimp from other shorts, like reactions and that kind of stuff, and reusing those, or using outtake footage. This is something that they're still doing today. I mean, literally, like you said, Paul Walker... Fucking Carrie Fisher in both yeah. Rogue One and Rise of Skywalker, both of those movies, essentially, they are fake shimping her using either old footage 
that is being doctored and digitally kind of played around with, or in the case of Rogue One, like a complete stand-in with her face kind of CGI mapped onto her. Oliver Reed is another modern example. He died as they were filming Gladiator. And so there's a couple of shots of him. They completely had to rework Gladiator, the entire ending, because he was going to be more key to that. They literally had to rework the ending and kill his character off. And there's several shots of that moment where it's not him at all. But the crazy thing is there have been lawsuits about this. And so fake shimping is very much a frowned upon thing by SAG. The biggest lawsuit that I know of, Crispin Glover fucking sued the shit out of Zemeckis and Spielberg and Universal for Back to the Future 2, because he did not come back to play the dad, George McFly, like he did in the first movie. He wanted too much money. I can't remember what the deal was. Whatever. He didn't come back. So they literally found another actor who looked enough like Glover. Yeah. And by the time that they, like, put weird makeup on him to, like, make his chin pointier and put a wig on him, and he kind of did an impersonation of Glover from the first movie. Holy shit. (laughs) That he literally was like, yo, no, you're literally using my likeness for this movie with this other actor without my permission. And he won. He totally won this fucking lawsuit. But yeah, basically like everybody that's core to Evil Dead, Sam, Bruce, Tapper, Josh Becker, even Ted Raimi, he was one of the fake shimps. Um, So yeah, all the (laughs) scenes where you see like just somebody's hand or a leg or whatever, it's usually somebody else. The hanging gourds and the bones that are kind of all over the cabin and the shed is a direct homage to Texas Chainsaw. The necklace that Ash buys for Linda, the like goofy magnifying glass little thing. Doesn't that seem like make you cringy a little bit? It's tacky. Yeah. Yeah. He goes into those really close ups of Ash and, you know, Bruce Campbell gives you those eyes, you know, like. Yeah. And they're playing the music. (laughs) Yeah. The romantic music. It would have been funnier if it was like one of those like best friend hearts. You take one side and I take (laughs) other when we put them together. Or if she just gave him a like, oh, but we're just friends. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Oof. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that magnifying glass was supposed to be this deus ex machina kind of thing where as the sun came up, the sun would focus the sunlight through the magnifying glass, and that's what would burn the Necronomicon at the end. I'm glad they did not do that. That would have been so dumb. And that was the entire point of the fucking goofy necklace, because as it stands right now, like that's just kind of this element in the movie to establish that they're together, right? But originally it was meant to be the thing that destroys the book, and it just... For whatever reason, it didn't work out mechanically. They couldn't figure out how to stage it or whatever. The shotgun is a real shotgun because they were like, fuck it. It costs five times as much to buy a prop shotgun. Let's just go to Kmart and literally buy a fucking live shotgun for like $150. Oh, America's. You mean S-Smart. Shop smart. Shop yes, yeah. S-Smart. Exactly. That's right. Shop smart. Shop S-Smart. Only in America, and that shit still hasn't really changed. <laughs> oh, no. Nope, not at all. They live fire the shotgun oh, in a couple wow. of scenes, including like the scene Jesus. where he blasts out the window. There is one shot where you see him blast a dummy of 
I think Cheryl. <laughs> that's all real. Apparently, Bruce's brother owns the shotgun now. That's cool. Of course, the Raimi family 1973 Oldsmobile Delta 88 yep. is used, which that car is in every every day. fucking one of his movies. That's just kind of one of his in-joke things. Yeah. The very last scene shot on location in Tennessee is actually the very first shot in the movie. It's the scene of the camera floating across the lake. Yeah. It literally was just him in a little canoe, and they just pushed him across the lake. Later for audio recording, they used fucking apples, dead chickens, lettuce, all these things to make the like flesh mutilation sounds. Totally work, yeah. So all the good crunch sounds is always just whacking apples or smashing shit with a hammer stabbing dead chickens right so good funny enough it didn't seem egregious oh it it all totally works there's a reason why those things are all kind of staples when it comes to doing foley work for movies we we made fun of bud the chud having the apple crunch noise and it being terrible (laughs) that's bad right like that's a terrible example of it but i remember like growing up some of the kung fu movies that we would make i would literally go back and record on like a tape deck sounds of whacking fruit and shit like one of the tricks to making like bone crunching and like hit noises is you like take a thing of celery and wrap that up in like a kitchen cloth and then just fucking whack it just beat it with like a hammer or a rolling pin and it makes that perfect crunch pop hit sound celery is good really good for bone cracks so you break an arm give it a nice little gives it more impact And if you want to get a good stomp in there, then you'll have to step on a few apples. So they were just doing like a lot of basic Foley work like that to make all these kind of gross mutilation sounds. The moaning sound of the book dying is actually, funny enough, reused in The Lawnmower Man to circle back around to that movie that we've talked about a couple times recently. (laughs) Hell yeah. One classic horror movie to another. Oh, yeah. So, (laughs) as far as the release of this movie goes, the first cut of the movie was nearly two hours long, and Raimi and Tappert worked with editor Edna Paul to, like, really fucking hone it down to be as lean and mean as possible, and I am happy to tell you guys, Evil Dead Rise is also fucking 93 minutes perfect. Awesome. There is not a wasted moment in that movie. There is no filler. There's no padding. It is just balls to the wall the entire time, right? So, like, there is something to be said about you do not have to have a super long movie for it to be effective. Again, I joked about Bo is Afraid being three hours, but that movie is also having to, like, work you into a fucking state. This movie is just, can we put you on a roller coaster for an hour and a half and you survive? Well, and the setup to this movie was perfect because it was just enough information you needed. And then it got into the possession and shit starting to happen pretty quickly. Yeah. Didn't really waste time. They shot the movie on 16 mil and then blew it up to 35 for standard theatrical screenings at that time. They were going to shoot on 8 millimeter, like just super 8, to be cheaper, right? Because that's 
way cheaper stock, but we're talking little tiny Super 8 cartridges where the film strip is that fucking thin. They said by the time that they blew that up to 35, it was like the most distorted grains the size of hailstones. You know, like they were just joking about how fucking terrible it looked in tests. So they <laughs> shot on 16 and then blew it up to 35. Thank God they were smart enough to test it. Could you imagine test like, it first. being at that level? Most people don't think to screen test. Could you imagine they shot the whole fucking movie in 8 mil? Uh-huh. And oh my God. And this is also the time too, which, so I was lucky enough, question mark, to go to film school right really when that transition was happening. So yeah. I was in film school in the mid 2000s. All of our professors were still very like stuck in 1993. Yeah. Mm. Our like theory professor, the most recent movie he had seen was fucking speed you know like those guys were great but they were very very old school they were very out of touch and on one hand it was great because we for our first year learned on film we had to use film we had to cut on a giant steinbeck we had to fuck with film and it was very much a learning exercise because we had to buy our own stock we had to pay for our own developing You had to be very fucking careful, and you had to be very specific with knowing what you want to shoot, how you're going to shoot it. You have to make sure everything is lit properly before you shoot. There's a lot of work that goes into making sure that you get what you want, because then once the camera starts rolling and you're burning film, like, you're burning money. And you don't really know what you have until you send that film off, get it developed, get it back, and then throw it up on a screen and look at it. You know, I remember, like, for our senior projects, we convinced them, like, hey, we want to do this digitally. We can document the whole process. We can show you all the outtakes. We can, like, actually make mistakes and not be spending our own money to make these mistakes. You know, like, we can learn and hone and develop and figure out how things work and experiment, but in a way that we are given the flexibility and grace to, like, figure the shit out. Because it's punishing working on film. Until you really get comfortable knowing what you're doing, it's really fucking brutal to shoot like that. And so now think about them in the fucking woods in Tennessee, middle of nowhere. They do not have access to, like, take the film every day and go get it developed and watch what they're shooting. So, yeah, they had gone out there and just shot the whole thing Super 8 and then got it all back and realized, like, oh, shit, this is not going to work. They just wasted a ton of time and money. So ultimately, the movie premiered. October 1981 at the Redford Theater in Detroit. And they went all out. They pulled a bunch of William Castle-esque kind of stunts. Mm. Like they hired an ambulance to be on standby out front of the theater. Like, oh God, this movie's so dangerous. People are falling out, right? Was there any reasoning behind the choice of theater? Was that theater endearing to them? Yeah. Campbell had gone there a couple times growing up. And so it was just like a theater that he knew. They made custom movie tickets for the release, and they had, like, spooky sound effects in the lobby and everything. So they went all out for this premiere, and apparently people loved it. The premiere really exceeded expectations. Raimi started showing it to, like, anybody, everybody that he possibly could. (laughs) Eventually, he caught the interest of producer Irvin Shapiro, who had distributed the original Night of the Living Dead. And he also brought a lot of foreign stuff to America for the first time. Old stuff like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Battleship Potemkin, like a lot of world cinema stuff. He like was kind of known for bringing that to America. He's also one of the guys who founded Khan. 
So one big thing that he did was he told them, scrap the original title, Book of the Dead. It's not going to work. Teens are going to be like, what the fuck is this movie about literacy? That sounds boring. (laughs) That's literally what he said. It was like, they're going to think it's about books. So they changed the title to Evil Dead. The other big thing was he convinced Raimi to invest in an international release, which is one of the major reasons why this movie is so fucking well-known and beloved, not just in America. Like, this movie was huge in Europe and Japan specifically. They fucking love Evil Dead in Japan. That's awesome. And there wasn't a long discovery period for the rest of the world. This was kind of an instant cult classic because it was everywhere kind of all at the same time. And Shapiro took it to the con film market. I've seen where people have said, oh, Evil Dead played at con. No, it didn't play at con. Yeah. It was not in the festival. He brought it to the con film market, which is on the other side of town. That's where like all the distributors go to yeah. buy shit for worldwide distribution, right? Derek, we've joked about this before, but that's where like Golan and Globus from Canon Films and Larry Cohen and all those guys would basically go and be like, here's the movie poster. It's werewolf motorcycle, and it's going to be a fucking movie with blood and tits, and it's a werewolf motorcycle. Cool. So we just need $300,000, right? <laughs> they would go and pitch movies based on, like, bullshit titles and fake posters, yeah. right? So ultimately, the final budget of this movie is somewhere in the, like, 300,000 to 500,000 dollar range. Nobody's really sure what the final number was. Again, keep in mind, they initially raised 90,000. 90,000, yeah. Crazy. Well over three times what they starting with. Yeah. And their whole idea was like, if we can get at least a hundred, we can go ahead and start filming and we'll get the rest of the money as we're going. And they got to 90 and we're like, can we please just fucking like start making this? We got to start making this movie. <laughs> God, it's it's amazing that this is such a cultural juggernaut now. And Ash Williams is a cultural icon. Oh, yeah. It's just all of this is incredible. So this is where, to your point earlier, famously, Stephen King was at this screening at Con. Right place, right time. Uh-huh. And his endorsement became this crucial element of marketing this movie. And led to a lot of its critical and financial success, because when Stephen King says your movie is one of the most ferociously terrifying and original things that I've ever seen, that's a huge fucking quote to put on your poster, right? Man, and just how long King has been like a juggernaut in horror. This is 80, like 81, and he has that kind of sway already. Yeah, this is early for him, but this was right when he was hot. Yeah, Yeah, or he has that kind of sway. That's incredible. So that's one major part of the triangle. Second thing is Stephen Woolley fucking fell in love with the movie. He agreed to distribute it in the UK via his company, Palace Cinema. So they were like kind of an up and coming genre film thing. So his scheme was, we're going to release the movie in cinemas and VHS at the same time. And hopefully that will help us avoid censorship boards and everything else if we just do it all at once they don't know what to focus on and instantly the movie was a huge hit in the uk and through the rest of europe and then the third thing is fangoria started covering the movie in 1982 and so they're putting this movie in their magazine repeatedly with several different articles lots of positive buzz so between fangoria And the endorsement from King and Stephen Woolley also picking the movie up for the UK, 
all of that led to the movie becoming like a very highly anticipated thing. Again, this is festival. This is just still them showing it around, but it not having right. an actual wide release yet. So despite the movie getting an X rating, which again, they were like kind of hoping that they could avoid, but there was just <laughs> no way around it. Which in 1994, it's been officially dropped to NC-17, but New Line still picked it up and distributed it theatrically in the U.S. starting in April of 83. So the movie premiered in late 81, but officially came out in the U.S. in April 83. And they did the same thing where the VHS was released at the same time, and the VHS that was released was an unrated VHS. Which now, when you buy a physical copy of the movie, it is also still unrated. New Line even went so far as to go ahead and just say, fuck it. And they cut Sam Raimi a check to go ahead and pay back all the original investors. In 84, that is when the movie got the dreaded video nasty ban (laughs) in the UK, which led to the VHS and film prints all being seized. The movie was never successfully prosecuted. But it was banned in the UK, despite it being the highest selling VHS tape the year before. It even beat the fucking Shining. A very heavily edited version was granted an 18 rating in 1990. And the unrated cut was finally granted an 18 in 2000. So it wasn't until fucking 2000 that you were able to like actually see the full version of this movie legally in the UK. That's insane. But honestly, like all of that, again, builds to, I guess, the lore and the legend of it. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, like we've talked about before, all these other movies that have been banned or edited, it always just drives demand. Yeah. Massive black markets throughout Europe for illicit VHS tapes. Same thing in Germany. The movie was released to theaters and VHS stores same day, and it was still seized and banned until 2016. You could not get the full uncut version in Germany. And like I said, just one of the all-time greatest selling VHS tapes literally ever of all time. There's so many fucking different versions of this movie. And there have been a gajillion different versions released on DVD and Blu-ray, now 4K. Originally back in the day, too, a huge chunk of the movie's gross came from drive-ins. This was a major drive-in movie. Joe Bob Briggs has talked about this being one of the ultimate drive-in movies, and he would sing its praises everywhere that he went. So ultimately, domestically, the movie grossed $2.4 million. Where it gets weird is the overseas gross is supposed to be somewhere between $262,000 and $27 million. <laughs> and there's just the usual weird, fucked-up accounting on yeah, all of that. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. You know, like I mentioned, this is one of the most ubiquitous physical media releases ever. So, I mean, it is way made its money. Matter of fact, Derek, we were talking about this the other day, but Evil Dead is one of those movies that I have literally owned on every format except Laserdisc. I have had this movie and the second movie, frankly, on VHS, DVD, Blu-ray, and now 4K. My favorites, and I say favorites, I had the like Anchor Bay special edition double disc DVDs that came out years ago that were the like Book of the Dead editions. I don't know if y'all remember like seeing those in stores. Yeah, you push the eye. Yeah. They had the like foam latex wrapper. I remember that. That made them look like the Necronomicon. And the I, I believe it was just the one from the second movie, if I remember correctly, like Kelly saying, you press the eyeball and it 
screams. You still have them, huh? No. So I love them. They're foam latex. They fucking rotted and they stank so fucking bad. That's bad. Too bad. The foam latex just got to like where it was literally falling apart and rotting and oxidizing and it stank so bad like imagine the most rank rubber smell like that's what it was like oh no because they had a stench initially but uh because i just pulled stuff out of storage they're literally in like mint condition they have a little bit of that leather smell or whatever but yeah but no i uh I'm, i was like bro because they're out of print now you know and for me oh, just yeah. like you there's certain shit that i'm like i fucking want it because it's out of print and i know it's out of print you know so i yeah i'm fortunate with those i do have both of them if mine had not completely fucking yeah. like dry rotted and gotten gross, I guarantee you I would still have them. Yeah. I probably honestly would have disc swapped the Blu-rays into those ah, cases. That's a great that's idea. That's a good idea, yeah. My boy, I'm gonna fucking do that. Look, I, I've done that with so much shit. Like I have some Blu-ray steel books that I have put 4K discs in now that I like got the discs for super cheap. I'm still weird about packaging and stuff since I'm a physical media person, yeah. but now I have the like nice 4K steel book that they put out a while back that has the first two movies on it. And this is where it gets weird. So like we mentioned, there's The Evil Dead, there is Evil Dead 2, there is Army of Darkness. Army of Darkness was released through Universal. So there's like a weird fucking break with it and the rest of the movies where the entire franchise kind of forks. So that's the other thing. As we kind of finish up this episode, we're not really going to chat Army of Darkness at all because there is a whole world of spinoff shit that is Army of Darkness specific. It's fucking bananas, too, that, again, the two-pack that they put out for 4K was just the first two movies, not Army of Darkness, because it's universal. Um, Scream Factory, like, did a separate 4K of that. They also did this big groovy collection, which is the first two movies and the the entire TV show, but not Army of Darkness. So So it's like this weird, incomplete set. That's very weird. Especially, like, and we're not going to get into the canon much in this episode of this franchise again. But they're all considered to be canon. Yeah. Even the remake, even Evil Dead Rises, even if they're just kind of more side stories or other stories happening in the same universe. But they're all basically considered canon. Yeah. And so, like, to not have Army of Darkness included in all that. It's just the bullshit rights, man. That's all it is. I didn't buy it because of that reason. Yeah, I was like, I'll wait for the... the, That's kind of infuriating, right? It's very, very upsetting. Yeah. So as far as the legacy of this movie goes, like we mentioned, just a whole world of shit that's like (laughs) spun off from this. So as we've mentioned, there's Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn, that came out in 87. Army of Darkness came out in 93. Whole period of development hell. (laughs) And then we get the soft reboot in 2013, just Evil Dead, no the, directed by Fetty Alvarez. It is more or less a retelling of the first movie. Different set of characters, different reason for being at the cabin, different way that certain things play out. There is kind of a larger, a little bit more going on lore-wise, but it's a lot of fun. I fucking love it. That is a movie that 100% I was all about once I saw it. Um, This was, keep in mind, like that era where they're remaking fucking every major horror title. Texas Chainsaw had been remade. Friday the 13th had been remade, a fucking terrible, weird remake of The Thing that came out just before Evil Dead, Nightmare on Elm Street remake that was shitty, like, came out of So, like, everybody went into this Evil Dead remake with a lot of suspicion, 
I've heard good things. Oh, it's a fucking blast. 100% we're going to cover it. But Fede Alvarez was very committed to like, we're going to make this hard R. We're going to do practical effects. It's going to be fucking mean. And Sam Raimi had his back the whole oh, way. Yeah. So the fact that Sam Raimi like put his stamp of approval on the whole thing and Tappert, like they both were behind this from the get go. It's great. I saw this with our college buddy, Rob who is also a huge fan of Evil Dead. We fucking loved it. I'm glad we saw it and didn't give in to the naysaying, because I would have been pissed if, like, I just listened to all the people that were talking shit about it and did not go see it in theaters. But it has since become a huge cult thing as people finally checked it out and said, oh, yeah, this is actually really fucking good. And like I said, it's more or less a remake, reboot kind of thing, because you could really look at it as still being in continuity with the main movies. Yeah. And the TV show. <laughs> yeah. So and after this, in 2015, we have Ash vs. Evil Dead. Bruce Campbell returned for it. It is very fucking funny. It is very slapsticky. It is very campy. It is very much a like comedy with horror shit in it. That ran from 2015 to 2018. Like I mentioned, Lucy Lawless is one of the stars of it as well. And it's a lot of fun. Uh, I definitely enjoyed it. And then, of course, we've got Evil Dead Rise that just came out now, directed by Lee Cronin, which I'll circle back around to that in a second. The other fun thing is, and I've mentioned this on an earlier episode, I can't remember which, look up the La Casa series. That is like the unofficial weird branch of nonsense movies that all market themselves as being Evil Dead sequels that have nothing to do with evil dead (laughs) in italy evil dead was released as la casa the house Mm. and evil dead 2 was la casa 2 well then there's like a completely separate la casa 3 4 5 6 7 but it's all shit like umberto Lindsay movies and it's like a whole weird smattering of unrelated stuff And that all eventually kind of crosses over with the Demons movies as well, too, from the Bavas. Of course it does. (laughs) Yeah. There's a whole smattering of Evil Dead video games. Yeah. Crazy enough, there was a Commodore 64 Evil Dead game that looks like garbage nonsense. Yeah, it's just like weird pixels. Evil Dead Hail to the King that came out in 2000 for the PS1 and Dreamcast. Fistful of Boomstick, which came out in 2003 for the PS2 and Xbox era. I played that one. I I played a bit of Fistful of Boomstick. Regeneration came out in 2005. It was also for the PS2, Xbox era. Didn't play that one. And then last year, 2022, there was Evil Dead The Game, which is like an asymmetrical multiplayer kind of hack and slash game where one person plays as the evil force and then the other three or four people play as ash and the other hero characters and it's fun because this game they have literally characters from all of the movies and ash versus evil dead so like there's characters from literally every bit of the series all their alternate costumes and looks are all fucking in it there's every like weird object from the movies so they did a good job from a fan standpoint 
I have heard that that game is just kind of fucking unplayable because it's hard for like matches to get made and just not a lot of people are playing it. That's kind of hard with like any of these games that rely on you playing with other people is, you know, it's hard to like make matches if you don't have a team of people you're playing with specifically. Yeah, I didn't play any of it. I've watched some gameplay from it. It doesn't seem terrible. And it's interesting because they are pulling out the stops for like having the voice work, at least from Bruce Campbell, which frankly, Bruce Campbell did his voice for Ash through most of the video games, if not all of them. Yeah, it looked like he did it for all the games, which I never played any of those games. I mean, I've mentioned on the show a bunch of times I'm just not really super into video games, and I didn't really have a video game console until the like Xbox 360 era. So I missed basically all of those Evil Dead games. Comics. This is where it gets kind of messy. There is a long-running but messy string of comic miniseries and one-shots across multiple different publishers. This is where, like I said, it gets kind of tricky because you have that Evil Dead as a title is in one direction and then Army of Darkness is in another but some of the ones that I'm, I wanted to highlight. So after the success of Freddy versus Jason, there was a sequel that was being developed, which was going to bring Ash into that as well. Ultimately, Bruce Campbell and New Line couldn't make things work. And the script treatment by Jeff Katz was turned into this miniseries called Freddy versus Jason versus Ash, which came out in 2007. It was written by James Kahorik and illustrated by Jason Craig. And it was put out by Wildstorm slash Dynamite. Ash literally gets transferred to the S-Mart that is at Crystal Lake. And him and a bunch of teenagers that work there, like, all get pulled into fucking Jason's dream world. And you find out that, like, Jason is a deadite. <laughs> so there's all this crazy shit, right? They did a sequel to that called The Nightmare Warriors that came out in 2009. Going away from... Where does it fall in the rights? There's an Army of Darkness versus Reanimator yeah. as well. <laughs> well, there is also Army of Darkness versus Darkman. And Marvel Zombies. Oh, wow. Yeah, Army of Darkness versus Marvel Zombies apparently actually has Ash in the Marvel Universe. Yeah. And you find out that the entire Marvel Zombies thing is because of Evil Dead. They're all deadites, essentially. So the other one that I'll mention, and this is one that like I just completely fucking stumbled across. Guess what? There is a fucking story arc from 2015 that is called Ash in Space, which is exactly what it sounds like, <laughs> written by Cullen Bunn. Who's been on our show twice. He's been on our show <laughs> two different times. Horror author Cullen Bunn. That's so cool. yeah, fun, wild shit. <laughs> there was an Evil Dead musical that premiered in Toronto in 2003 and went off Get the fuck out. Get the fuck uh-huh. out, really? <laughs> so lastly, again, we get to Evil Dead Rise. Open up now. You don't look so good, Mom. Nothing Big old kiss from you won't fix. I'm getting us out of here. I promise. You'd be a good mom someday, honey bath. Oh, yeah? Yeah, you know how to lie to kids. <laughs> Mom? Mommy's with the maggots now. 
This was directed by Lee Cronin, who did The Hole in the Ground, which was interesting. I remember being intrigued by it enough that like, I enjoyed, ultimately, what that movie was. So I asked Aaron about this. Have you seen this, Kelly? The Hole in the Ground? I have not seen The Hole in the Ground. It was kind of a festival favorite from a couple of years ago that was getting a lot of buzz. It's interesting. I just never even heard of it. Yeah, Lee Cronin's an Irish filmmaker. His connection with Raimi is he did one of the 50 States of Fright Quibi microfilms. You know, so from what I understand, he had a pitch for this Evil Dead movie, pitched it to Raimi, and Raimi and Tappert and Campbell were all like, fuck yeah, let's do it. What's interesting is 1,000%, if I did not know that Lee Cronin directed this movie, I would tell you Fetty Alvarez had done it. Because it is so tonally and visually in line with the 2013 movie that you can 100% just say they're direct sequels. It is brutal. It is fun. It is one of the goriest things I've ever seen. Awesome. It is just intense as hell. And it's so fucking fun. It is every line that you know and that's the crazy thing i was thinking about afterward like man the first evil dead doesn't have that many like quotable lines like the second movie in army of darkness do but yeah all the quotable lines pop out there's tons of winky to the fan things like henrietta's pizza and there's a three stooges poster up in one of the kids rooms but this is essentially a woman who goes to stay with her sister in a high-rise apartment in LA that is condemned and everybody is like being forced to move out and this is the last week that they're all there and so it's her sister and her three kids and this earthquake happens and the earthquake kind of reveals this whole secret history to the building And part of that is, oh, we have this fucking weird book. What is this? And things go from there. It is pretty fucking unrelenting. It does not give a fuck about safety in terms of, oh, sure, this character is totally going to be okay. Nope. mm -mm. It is very, fuck you, we're going there in terms of the intensity of this movie. It's just the weird, like, Home Alone antics of... What are all the things around your house right now that you can think of that would really fucking hurt if somebody came at you and attacked you with it? Like a lamp and stuff like that. Like a cheese grater. Yeah. You see that in the marketing. Uh, That is used to great effect. The performances are really solid. Uh, Lily Sullivan and Elisa Sutherland especially are very good. The three kids in the movie, Morgan Davies, Gabriel Eccles, and Nell Fisher are all excellent as well. We had a fucking blast. Heather loved this movie. I had a blast with it. I definitely got the itch to watch the 2013 one again. I had a lot of fucking fun with it. And I'm very curious to see how this movie does over the next couple of weeks. Because, you know, if this movie takes off and does well, I'm sure they're going to try to do another one pretty quick. But if this movie tanks, this might be the last we see of Evil Dead for a while. But the thing is, Evil Dead kind of keeps coming back. Yeah. yeah. Well, and Raimi and, and Campbell want to continue. Yeah. It's not like one of those things where it's like, okay, we're we're sick of this. We're going to let others take over the reins. Like, yeah. no, they're very much like we have other plans for future uh, movies. Yeah. The thing about Evil Dead Rises, because like one of the most iconic images from the first, from the Evil Dead, the movie we've been talking about, 
is Cheryl possessed in the cellar, but just her face and hands like are up. Like yeah. she's locked in, but you could still see her hands or face. And like she's like that through most of the movie and taunting them as other people are getting possessed. It feels like, at least with the marketing with Evil Dead Rise, because they did a really smart job with the marketing, the image of the mom as a deadite seems oh, yeah. like kind yeah, of on yeah, yeah. par with that, like as far as just memorable shit of a horror thing. They did a great job marketing this movie because the marketing gives you plenty to chew on. Like, it's not really hiding a lot of the, like, this is the intensity that we're going for, but there's still so much stuff that the trailers don't give you. So they've done a good job marketing this movie. Plus, the mom looks fucking terrifying really in the marketing, does. by the way. Oh, it's great. The Deadite look, the way they move, the way they sound, it is all... 100% perfectly in step with the rest of the series. Yeah, I had a blast. And again, it's it's just so fun to watch the natural progression from The Evil Dead 1981 to where we are in 2023. Yeah. And like, it still fucking hits. Evil Dead 81 was still scary. So I can't yeah. even imagine how scary Rise is. Well, and here's the like one interesting wrinkle. And I might add this out of the episode itself, but I'll tell y'all, because this is not like a spoiler or anything. It was just like an interesting, like, oh, they're like bringing this to kind of the next level. There's a moment where, and you see this in the trailer, so this is not a spoiler, but they find like these LPs and the kid is playing the LP and it's like a priest narrating the whole like, oh, we found the book and the book is blah, blah, blah. And, you know, here we're going to read the incantations and it's the whole Kandarian demon thing, right? But there's a moment where he's like, this is one of the three Necronomicon Ex Mortis books. And so you're like, oh shit. So there are multiple Necronomicons because the book in this movie is a different design physically from the one that's in 2013, which is a different design from the original movies, right? So it very much kind of posits, oh no, this is all the same world. And these are just three different versions of the Necronomicon or three different yeah. volumes of it. So it's interesting that they laid that very specific piece of lore in there because they could go in any direction yeah. that they want to yeah. now, at least, and bring in the books. And I'll say this, too. The book is not definitively dealt with in this movie. So they definitely left it open for more. And maybe this is just like me being totally ignorant to the series otherwise and just going into it watching this movie i just assumed there was other books anyway because like i just assumed like there was a different book in two a different book in army of darkness a different book in ash vs evil dead it's supposed to be the same throughout all of those yeah i didn't know that and like i said the 2013 movie is kind of a soft reboot so like is it is it is it not it doesn't matter whatever but this movie specifically says this is one of the three so who knows? Like, it could be fucking cool to see Mia from 2013 and then Beth from this movie and fucking Ash, actual Bruce Campbell cool. Ash, all teamed up together. That would be cool as shit. They have the one from 2013. That's and what I'm the saying. Yeah, Rises, like, yeah. bring all three of them together and, like, okay, we got to stop this, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very Gravity Falls, actually. Yeah. So they set some shit up in a very interesting way to keep the series going. And I think think this movie will do well because all the buzz has been very positive all the like feedback is very positive i mean the negative feedback i have heard has really just amounted to like oh it's no evil dead 
what kind of fucking criticism is that? Fuck off, right? That doesn't mean anything. I don't know. The audience that we were with had a fucking blast. Heather and I had a blast. It's great. What is Evil Dead? Because the first Evil Dead sounds like it's extremely different from the second one. They're all different. They're all different. Even though, like, Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness are very slapsticky and comedic, they're also just completely different yeah. fucking movies because yeah. one is in a cabin in the woods and one is in, like, fucking medieval <laughs> land with castles and shit. They're all very different, but that's what I love about the series is you truly feel like you're getting something new with each one. And again, even though 2013 is very much a remake of the first movie, all the reasoning is different. The characters are different. It's a much more intense movie. It, they're all different in that regard. So anyway, um, cool. Well, this has been a hell of an episode, guys. And yeah. thank you all for sticking with us. Had a good time. So I guess what thoughts do we have for now on the final Evil Dead? Kelly, what, if, what are your final thoughts being that this was the movie you picked? Just watch it. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Definitely. It's it's up there. Yeah. I would say for most people who consider themselves horror fans or just fans of movies, you know, there's a reason why Sam Raimi has been as successful in his own right, you know, for as long as he has. And this is a testament to that. Absolutely. To piggyback off of what Kelly just said, horror newbies, you got my opinion already. Like, it's a very intense horror movie, but it is a must watch for horror fans, I'd say. But the other thing to piggyback off of what Kelly was saying is I think anyone who is interested in the art of filmmaking in general, regardless of if you like horror or not, should at least watch this. Yeah, you might not like it if you're not a fan of horror, but you would at least have to appreciate the craft of movie making that this movie pulls off from just the effects themselves or the Raimi shot, yeah. like you guys joked earlier. Here's the beginning of it. I've said this a bunch of times in the show, too. Like, even if you're tepid about horror, just like a lot of other stuff, expose yourself to the thing if it terrifies you like cool as a little bit of an antidote listen to our episode learn about the movie look up more shit about it look up behind the scenes stuff look at making of documentaries there's so many things about this movie that will help you kind of break down your fear and you kind of have the like wonderment like you said of oh this is how they actually did all this crazy shit you know so it's a great movie in that regard. It's a great movie for like aspiring filmmakers just to like, again, learn craft and figure things out and experiment and have fun. So it's, it's very much that movie for me and will be and always has been one of my favorites. Cool. Well, uh, that is going to be it for this episode of Watch If You Dare. Kelly, where can people find you? Um, do you have anything that you want to plug? You mentioned you're about to shoot something, but uh, do you currently have anything that our listeners can check out? Not at the moment. Uh, I've actually been doing, y'all are going to laugh, but I've been doing a, I guess, a social media cleanse. Good for you. Yeah, good <laughs> yeah. for you. Midnight, January 1st, when the clock hit, I got off of everything. The only thing I have, because I have a lot of friends that are international, is Facebook Messenger. And people are like, how do you have Messenger but not Facebook? Well, you can. So. You can. But no, uh, not at the moment, but 100% everything I think is going to line back up once I get back from this trip and, and we really, really start start aiming for, for principal photography in July. So I'm excited. We'll know more in the summer. Hell yeah. Cool. Well, Derek, you want to go ahead and take us out? Sure. We are watching Dare Horror Movie Podcast hosted by me, the newbie coward Craven, and my co-host Aaron, the movie Monster Boy. I'll swallow your soul. I'll swallow your soul. <laughs> Join us. We didn't even talk about that. Join us. 
I think I read that was Ted Raimi that was voicing the demonic voice. But yeah, you can find us at our socials at WatchVere on Facebook and Twitter. Please continue to follow us and download us at your favorite podcatcher. We are on all of them, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Google, etc. Please continue to rate and review us, especially on Apple, Spotify, Podchaser, Good Pods. Five stars, please. You can support us on Patreon for just the price of a cup or two of coffee or a beer at a bar. A month, you get access to our bonus content, bonus episodes of me and Aaron talking about TV and other horror content and other film content, even depending on when this episode drops. We'll have had two of them at the time of this recording, two episodes, and we had the second episode we put out uh, was covering the first 10 episodes of Gravity Falls. So check that out. We are at patreon.com slash watch if you dare. And that's patreon.com slash watch if you dare for only five bucks a month get access to all that bonus content. So thank you to our Patreons who already contribute to us and please consider contributing to us to uh, help keep this show ad free and possibly open up more contribution levels. And also your little brother, Jesse Mansfield, like always, thanks to him for the bumps at the beginning and end of each episode, including on our Patreon. You can support his music on Bandcamp at Partygator, Big Clown, Possums, etc. Speaking of music, we have a Spotify music playlist. You can find the Spotify music playlist pinned at the top of our Facebook and on our Podbean website. Our Podbean website actually has the links to pretty much all our stuff, including our Patreon. I think that's it. I think that's all we got. Any, anything else we want to add, Aaron? I mean, I don't have anything else, but I guess let's check this fucking weird tape that I found and see if oh, this guy... Oh, God, you're going to put it on again? Has any recommendations? Hold on. I know now that my wife has become host to a Kandarian Sally. I fear that the only way to stop those possessed by the spirits of the book is through the act of bodily dismemberment. Thank you.